Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. New York, New York. A new play reveals something a lot of people may not know about New York City's Central Park. People used to live there, and in the 1850s, a predominantly black community was forced to move from the land. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang reports on that history and the story it's inspired on stage. And we should note, too, that there's some offensive language here. It was called Seneca Village, though no one knows for sure if it was named after the Roman philosopher or the Native American nation. We do know about 300 people called it home beginning in the 1820s. There were some Irish and German immigrants, but mainly free African Americans. Cynthia Copeland is one of the lead researchers of the site with the Seneca Village Project. She says its residents were targeted with insults in newspapers, including racial slurs. They literally called them tramps, squatters, Thieves, lowlifes, um, they referred to Seneca Village as nigger village. The New York Times described them as stubborn insects. Copeland says it was part of a smear campaign to help justify destroying people's property, using eminent domain to make way for what would become the most visited city park in the country. She found evidence of Seneca Village on the park's west side. And let's see if we can still see one of our surveyor marks on the tree. Copeland scans a pine tree on a dusty field. A few years ago, this is where she and some archaeologists carefully excavated, guided by old maps, title deeds, and census records. They found shards of porcelain, a small leather shoe, and a stone foundation. There were churches here. There were schools here. There were two- and three-story framed houses. That's why this is an incredible story. This is a story of early land ownership by African-Americans. All right, so why don't we just start at the top again and we'll just keep working through it. 
Actors at premier stages at New Jersey's Kane University are now retelling the story of Seneca Village in a new play called The People Before the Park. It's set a few years after New York lawmakers approved taking over the private property. In one scene, a shoe merchant tries to convince a young neighbor to pressure the city to pay them more to leave their homes. When Papa returns, I'll tell him you paid a visit. Jonas, this is urgent. This is our home, a safe place. Keith Joseph Atkins wrote the play. He says that Seneca Village was an important refuge for many black residents from the racism of 19th century life in New York. It meant that they would be free to go about life the way they wanted, wake up, do whatever they want, go to sleep, you know, just to have a simple, peaceful life. Atkins created fictional characters based on his research on the community. The play's main character is a 42-year-old oysterman and a New Yorker going back six generations. His name is Stephen Van Cleef, and he lives with his son Jonas in a one-story house with a porch. His wife has gone missing, and he's worried she'll never find them again if they leave Seneca Village. I'm not going anywhere, all right? Not selling, not going, full value or not. Later, in the play's last scene, he's confronted outside his home by a police officer with a billy club. Actor Billy Eugene Jones plays the role of Stephen Van Cleef. He says audiences can assume his character does eventually leave. Because, after all, spoiler alert... You know, Central Park is there. <laughs> so there is no kind of waiting mystery like, hmm, I wonder if they're going to build a park. Still, the play offers moments of tension between neighbors, lovers, parents, and their children... Jones says it's a chance to meet people whose stories have been forgotten. Somehow somebody found a piece of paper. Somehow somebody found patterns of stone in Central Park. And they said, oh, wow, what was this? And then people started to have these people live again. This time on stage, The People Before the Park is premiering tonight. Hansi Wong, NPR News, New York. Serena Williams, Wimbledon champion for a sixth time. All the big trophies and the big titles in her hands at once. And next stop, New York. Many people think that when he beat Jimmy Connors in 1975, the great Arthur Ashe was the first African-American tennis player to win Wimbledon. But actually, a woman player came first, Althea Gibson, when she won at Wimbledon and at the U.S. Nationals, what became the U.S. Open, in the 1950s. Ms. Gibson is the subject of a new documentary directed and produced by Rex Miller, and I'm very pleased that he joins us now, along with Leslie Allen, who was an American Tennis Association, Women's Tennis Association, and NCAA champion. American Masters Althea Gibson premieres on PBS uh, in a couple of days, September 4th. Yes, sir. Althea was uh, born in South Carolina but moved to Harlem when she was still very young. What was her childhood like? Althea, yeah, she was a uh, product of sharecropper parents, born in 1927. And what intrigued me so much uh, about the story initially was her arc, her story arc from sharecropper parents to 30 years later getting the Wimbledon trophy from the Queen of England. Wouldn't a poor kid who dropped out of school when she was 12 be a rarity in an elite uh, sport like tennis even today? Oh, most definitely. But she had the benefit of some mentors who identified her athletic talent at an early age and brought her along through the uh, black tennis circles. Leslie, it's, it's not as exclusive as it once was, but do you think that tennis can still be a difficult sport for poor inner city kids to have access to? I think tennis can be a difficult sport for anyone to have access to because it is quite expensive and it's 
takes a long time to build a champion, and you have to do it on your own. It doesn't depend on whether or not you have a great physical skill. You also have to have that mental fortitude. And oftentimes you don't know that until someone is much older and you've already invested a lot in them. The boxer Sugar Ray Robinson was an early mentor for her. How did Althea meet him, and what kind of influence did he have on her, Rex? Yeah, early on she was playing uh, in the play streets of Manhattan through the Police Athletic League, and one of the uh, caretakers of that program was Buddy Walker, a band leader and saxophone player who identified her talent and introduced her to Sugar Ray, uh, who also saw her talent, and he and his wife uh, mentored her and encouraged her to pursue her uh, athletic talents. But she wasn't first playing tennis. She was playing other kinds of sports that involved using a racket. Yeah, she was playing paddle tennis with a shorter racket on a smaller court in the streets right in front of her house. Leslie, when did you first meet Althea, and what was your impression of her? Well, Althea was someone that was known to my family. I actually grew up with a picture of her in our house, um, autographed. I didn't have the typical JFK, Martin Luther King picture in our house with Althea Gibson. Um, and the first time that I really dealt and interacted with her was in 1979, I believe. She came to Boston, and uh, four of us, Zena Garrison, Kim Sands, Andrea Buchanan, and myself trained with her. And it was life-changing just to see her, be there with her, and work with her. She said one thing to me, and it changed my whole arc of my career. What did she say? She looked at me, and she said, with your wingspan, you need to think about winning WTA Tour events. And I was a late starter in tennis, so I thought, well, maybe if I could get good enough to be in the tournament, that would be okay. Um, And she was like, no, you need to think about winning tournaments. And eventually I did. She was described as being socially standoffish. Do you think that hurt her career and her prospects? Um, Not necessarily her career, because she was world champion twice over. Um, But I think tennis at that time was a very snobby sport, whether you were in the black community or the white community, very elitist sport. And, you know, Althea came from humble beginnings, and everybody isn't necessarily accepting of someone who's come from humble beginnings, regardless of how much they've achieved. So that was difficult. And if she was going to go on post her play to, quote, earn a living in the sport, um, she didn't fit the demographic that was doing that in tennis. So that that part was difficult. And let's be clear, she was playing in the era of Emmett Till, the worst segregation in our society, and she was cutting through to play in this very elite white sport. So it was difficult at every turn. Rex, as you um, mentioned earlier, two men, Dr. Hubert Eaton and Dr. Robert Johnson, noticed Althea's talent and took her under their wings. Who were they, and how did they change her life? uh, Hubert Eaton and uh, Robert Johnson were two black doctors that lived in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, in Lynchburg, Virginia, and they saw in her... Uh, a possible Jackie Robinson to break through the uh, barriers of white tennis, and they brought her down to Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, where she went to high school for four years, 18 to 22, because she had skipped school from the age of 12. But this and, is the segregated South. Mm-hmm, segregated South. And uh, during the summertime, she stayed at Dr. Johnson's house in Lynchburg, Virginia. Both of these doctors had backyard tennis courts, and that was really the only place you could play tennis in the South as a black person because there were no public recreation facilities. So they mentioned 
mentored her during the summer. She played on the black tennis circuit, the ATA, American Tennis Association, which was founded in 1917 and really represented a parallel tennis universe. But since she also came from the mean streets of, of New York, um, even in that world, wasn't she considered rather rough? Yeah, the uh, the what we call what we know now is sort of the bourgeoisie of, of black society didn't always take to her rough edges. But Dr. Johnson and Dr. Eaton mentored her and let her know that if you do want to break through, you have to clean up your act a bit. Did the U.S. Tennis Association have a written ban on black players competing in national competitions? No. As uh, Dick Savitt, Wimbledon champion, points out in our film, it was more of an unwritten rule that banned people of color. And uh, Alice Marble, who was a world champion at the time, took Althea's case uh, very seriously and wrote an open letter in one of the big tennis magazines that challenged the uh, powers that be to let her into the tournaments. So she finally was able to play at Forest Hills. What was the reaction to th of the fans? Well, um, some fans obviously appreciated her tennis ability, but there were you know, shouts of the N-word and Nigga! that this wasn't and this right. This is in New York. This is in New York City, 1950. But from people that I spoke to, there were a lot of people that just wanted to see good tennis. So I wouldn't say that was a, a cut across all people. Her first championship match at Forest Hills in 1950 was very dramatic. Um, <laughs> can you tell us what happened? Yes, yeah, she played in the second round. She played uh, the number one player in the country who had won several uh, Wimbledon U.S. titles, Louise Bruff. And Althea was about to close out the match deep in the third set. And the match was literally interrupted by thunder and lightning, um, which actually lightning actually struck one of the cement eagles, literally a six or seven foot cement eagle on the top of the stadium, which toppled off the back of the stadium. And uh, everybody had to go home for the day and come back the next day. Leslie, were you born in 1950 when this happened? <laughs> no, I was not born. I was probably, no, I, I was not born. So uh, you, by the time you became aware of Althea Gibson, she was already an established player. This is her she breakthrough was, moment. Yeah, she was. She she was a person that I knew had won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open because my mother, Sarah Allen, had played on the ATA circuit as an amateur, and Althea had preceded her winning the ATA championship when she couldn't play in the U.S. Nationals for 10 years in a row, let's say. So Althea's lore was known to anybody that was around the ATA circles. Um, as a kid growing up, I heard she won Wimbledon in the U U.S. championships, but I didn't really understand the racism that she had to overcome in order to do that because of the tennis world that I was involved in was just the African-American tennis world and, world and very welcoming. Um, so it wasn't until older, starting on the tour, playing in college at USC, that I really understood the largesse of her accomplishment. Did she talk much about race, Rex? Well, Althea, you know, Althea being uh, that famous, I mean, she was on the cover of Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, New York Times multiple times, and uh, obviously there were going to be people in the civil rights movement who wanted to take advantage of that and have her speak about race issues. But again, this was in the time of uh, Jim Crow, Emmett Till, and this is long before Martin Luther King or Arthur Ashe came on the scene. So it was it was a very tough and daunting challenge to be able to talk about race. So she preferred to let her racket do the talking, and she always said that, I just want to be champion, I just want to compete, just let me be one of you. But in the 50s, that was going to be a difficult thing. 
But uh, she was uh, somebody who, as you say, made magazine covers and actually uh, was somebody who perhaps uh, the United States was using uh, for its propaganda uh, fighting the the very bad image that it had around the rest of the world for things like Emmett Till. Yeah, in 1955, she was asked to go on a State Department tour overseas in Asia, and a lot of people said, don't do it, Althea, they're just using you. And she said, well, I'm going to go because it's a great opportunity for me, and I'm going to represent my country to the best of my ability and pursue my tennis. And she went, and she won 18 tournaments in a row, which kind of launched her into winning first the French Open and Wimbledon. Because when she first broke through in 1950 um, and didn't make the championship at Forest Hills, she didn't win Forest Hills or Wimbledon until 1957. So the State Department tour in 55 represented a great opportunity that she eventually took advantage of. Leslie, do you think that Althea helped to get more African-Americans interested in tennis? Um, I I think because African-Americans were already playing tennis and Althea actually came to it late, um, it was more of um, the fact that she was a great champion um, because it was still... Tennis wasn't universal. It was still seen as a snooty sport. Only some people play, um, or even African-Americans were told when they were playing tennis, oh, you're trying to be white. So it wasn't as accepted in a universal sport like it is today. So only certain, quote, types of people were supposed to be playing tennis in the era of Althea Gibson, unlike today where tennis is, you know, much, much more open. But uh, I I wonder if uh, Serena Williams has to face some of the the things that Althea did on and off the court. Uh, Both of them uh, have been described as being masculine. Do you see that as as coded language? Um, I think from a lot of times um, athletic women do get that coded language as, as being masculine. And I think, you know, when you compare... Venus, Serena, or any of the African-American players today to Althea, you have to realize that when Althea was playing, there was institutional racism at every turn. She couldn't stay in the hotel. She couldn't go in the locker room. She couldn't eat in the dining room. She couldn't, she couldn't, she couldn't. And despite that, she still excelled. Yes, in today's world, like any African-American person, you will find some racism here and there. It will crop up. It's expected. Um... So there are challenges that I face, that Venus faced, Serena faced, but they were not nearly the magnitude that Althea faced in tennis. And if that wasn't enough, she went into golf. Hmm. So that is just a remarkable accomplishment from that standpoint. From Katrina to Ferguson, it's been 10 years since the watery carnage of Katrina and one year since the fiery rage lit the night skies of Ferguson, Missouri. And between the two harrowing events lay the state of black America, isolated, demonized, and damned. When the levees broke and the rushing waters of Hurricane Katrina swept into the wards of New Orleans, the ninth ward, the blackest ward, received the greatest damage and the least relief. Today, ten years after its horrific flooding, the ninth is barely half of its former population of working class and poor inhabitants. It is a shell of its pre-flood glory. What the residents of the night learned was the cold, hard truth that they were all on their own, alone facing the fury of the storm. 
Oh, they could call 911, and they may even have gotten an answer. But no one came for them, for they were in the Ninth Ward, as black as they were expendable. Flip to Ferguson, summer 2014, the time of Mike Brown's killing by a cop and the subsequent explosion of protests by black youth. Young black men, women, and children took to the streets and faced police sniper rifles, automatic weapons, Humvees, and scared, paranoid white cops. How many of us know that protests have continued daily since then? The media may have fled the story, but the people haven't. Some have pitched tents. Others have set times daily to join the protests. But they are there every day to remind us of their very deep and very real discontent with an oppressive system that has soured their days and nights. For the fires of Ferguson still burn. They burn in their hearts. They simmer in their souls. They roar in their minds, these fires of discontent. And Katrina, if ever we wondered if black lives mattered, the squalid treatment of the people of New Orleans, especially the Ninth Ward, answered that question decisively. Politicians, banks, media, and entrepreneurs plucked what they could and kept on moving, leaving the intrepid souls of the Ninth to fend for themselves, isolated, demonized, damned. Touch points for black America, Katrina and Ferguson. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. You have to build a movement so strong in this country that if one black man is touched, every black man will rise up and let this country know they're not going to tolerate it. It's not fun having all these people in jail, but these are freedom fighters. They're the vanguard. Revolution has come. Okay. Time to pick up the gun. And if you're not prepared for that, then you don't belong with that black man's home. 49 years ago, as black Americans protested for equal rights and faced an ongoing onslaught of violence from their white neighbors, police, and elected officials, a new movement arose out of that, and it was not based on Martin Luther King's philosophy of nonviolent resistance. Rather, at least in the beginning, it was about arming black citizens to protect themselves and to challenge police brutality. It was 1966, it was October, and the founders of the movement called themselves the Black Panther Party. We use the uh, Black Panther as our symbol because the Panther doesn't strike anyone, but when he's assailed upon, he'll back up first. But if the aggressor continues, then he'll strike out. That's the voice of Huey Newton, the founder of the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers' Vanguard of the Revolution is the first feature-length documentary to explore the history and the lasting cultural impact of the Black Panther Party. It opens in selected theaters this week. It's directed by award-winning filmmaker Stanley Nelson, who joins me in the studio now. And we're also joined by former Black Panther Michael D. McCarty, who's in Los Angeles. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much. Ditto. Thank you. Greetings. Very good to have both of you. Stanley Nelson, the Black Panther Party started not as a national movement. There were national movements going on at the time. This started as a local response in Oakland to Oakland police by Oakland people. Right. You got it perfectly right. The Panther started in Oakland because of the police brutality there. The, the police in Oakland were notorious. And uh, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, 
maybe four or five others got together and said, you know, we got to do something about it. There was a strange law at that time in California that said you could carry a gun as long as it was in the open, a loaded weapon in the open. And so what they did was followed the police, basically just rode around behind the police. When the police would stop somebody, they would jump out behind the police and try to make sure that no brutality occurred. But they also had loaded weapons. So they would follow the police around, police encounters. This helped protect black people who were being arrested or searched, certainly. But there was also a show of force. There was also a counter-intimidation factor, I think. Yeah, as a, a former policeman that we interview in the film says, it was pretty intimidating to jump out and, and do a traffic stop, let's say, and, and right behind you, six or seven armed black men jump out with rifles and uh, kind of stand there observing what you do. Michael McCarty, what do you remember of the time? Were you in Oakland? No, I'm from Chicago, but I remember that because that was the thing that got my attention. They did what just about every Black person wanted to do in terms of confronting the racism and the brutality and saying, all right, enough of this. We're not going to march. We're not going to pray. If you mess with us, we're going to mess with you back. And that was just a galvanizing concept. Michael D. McCarty, one of the interesting points in the film is the contrast with the Southern Civil Rights Movement. That was a movement of the South. That was a religious movement. The Panthers weren't. The Panthers were a Northern movement and an urban movement. Does that ring true with you? And can you sort of explain why that was important? Well, what you had is many of the members of the party, uh, Fred Hampton and myself were members of the NAACP, Many of us had come out of the civil rights movement, had been involved with the civil rights movement. We had participated in marches and demonstrations or, or seen our friends uh, and loved ones getting beaten. And basically, there was a growing movement within the NAACP, a youth wing, that wanted to do something else. So when the Black Panther Party came along, there was the opportunity to do that something else to take it to a different level, to take a different approach, more in line with Malcolm X's idea. Say, I'll be nonviolent with you as long as you're nonviolent with me. But if you grab a gun, I'm going to grab a gun too. Stanley Nelson, one of the jumping off points of your film is the difficulty the Panthers had when their movement caught on and expanded across the country. And you have Panthers from the early days saying it got so big so fast we got all comers. We got people from every corner. We didn't know who they were, and they were armed. Well, in the film, what we're, what we're kind of leading to is the fact that the Panthers were riddled with informers. Jagger Hoover sent out a, an edict that said that the Black Panthers were the greatest internal threat to the security of America. Basically, he said to his agents, do whatever you can. Just make sure whatever you do doesn't come back onto the FBI. So, you know, they would do dirty tricks. They would pit husband against wife, panther against panther, panthers against other groups, anything that they could possibly think of to try to destroy the panthers. Stanley Nelson, you're thinking, having made this film during yet another episode of confrontation of police brutality in this country, how much things have changed or haven't, how you're thinking about that context as your as your film comes out. I think one of the things that's so startling about the film is when we talk about the Panthers' 10-point program, 
You know, we want to end police brutality. We want decent employment for black people. We want decent schools. We want decent housing. You know, all of those things are things that are still with us and that we're still fighting for today. Now, you've gone through a history of the Black Panthers and what they stood for, but you're also a filmmaker, obviously, someone who understands the importance of the image and of the video image. And the difference today, of course, is the image iPhone images, body cameras. Back in 1966, such a thing didn't exist. A lot of this was hidden from public view. It's not hidden anymore. Right. One of the things that that I've heard somebody say is that right now in America, we're we're at a moment where white folks are saying, wait a minute, you know, why didn't you tell us? You know, now we're seeing it. Why didn't you tell us? And black people are saying, we have been telling you for 100 years that this has been going on. This is not something new. It's not like it went away with the Panthers and came back. Also, as we look today, you know, maybe it's the camera is the new gun. You know, the Panthers carried these guns to to try to protect the citizenry from the police. I think that cameras are now, they're not protecting people because it hasn't worked, but it's making people see and making people talk about what's going on in this country in a way that they didn't a year ago. I think we're in a totally different moment now. The film is Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution. Stanley Nelson is the director. He's also the director of Freedom Riders and the Murder of Emmett Till. Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution opens in selected theaters this week. Stanley Nelson, thank you so much. Thank you. Also, Michael D. McCarty, former Black Panther from Chicago, now in Los Angeles. Mr. McCarty, thank you. You're very welcome. We need that perfect hair. Who exactly are you, man? What's going on? All you do is ask me what the hell I am, who I'm with, what I'm buying. You're exactly like a motherfucking cop, man. Shit is bullshit, man. I'm free. I'm free. Let me be free. I want to be a cop. The Justice Department is looking into another police shooting, the death of Zachary Hammond. The unarmed teenager was killed in South Carolina earlier this summer during an attempted drug arrest. His death hasn't sparked the kind of protests or social media attention of other questionable police shootings. Hammond's family wonders if this is because Zachary was white. Chenjirai Kumanyika lives close to where the shooting occurred and has this commentary. Just after sunset on a muggy August evening, my wife and I were standing outside the Hardys in Seneca, South Carolina, the place where Zachary Hammond died. We were at a modest memorial, about 50 people including family members and journalists. I spoke with Zachary's uncle. We stood over the spot where his nephew was shot, and he turned to me and asked a question that I knew was coming. Don't you think that if Zachary had been black, that there would be more media attention, he said? I understood what they were hoping to see. Their beloved boy was gone, and they wanted the world to mourn him in the way other young people killed by police have been mourned and for the world to demand answers. Before coming to Zachary's vigil, I asked Ray McKesson, an influential Ferguson protester with a huge following on social media, if he had any advice for those trying to generate more interest in the Hammond case. McKesson put it simply, We have found taking to the streets to be a successful strategy. But after talking with the Hammond family, their supporters, and many residents in Seneca, it's not clear if the community here is willing to do that. Twelve days after the shooting, a conservative blogger seemed to speak for many in Seneca, which is mostly white. He posted this. The evidence remains very murky on both sides, so those of us with patience and common sense have refrained from expressing outrage. We prefer that the natural process of justice be allowed to occur without any interference. That's an important distinction. 
When a black person is killed by the cops under dubious circumstances, African-Americans tend not to expect the justice system to work with us or for us or for media outlets to give airtime to these causes. In Ferguson, neither Al Sharpton nor CNN showed up until our massive outcry made Michael Brown's death impossible to ignore. To bring attention to black lives that are lost, we know that we have to organize and protest. As the vigil for Zachary Hammond ended, my wife and I offered our condolences to his parents. Tearfully, his mother thanked us for our support. Why can't it be all lives matter, she asked. I didn't know what to say. At any other time, at any other place, I would lay out my belief that by focusing on the most vulnerable among us, all lives become safer. The conservative white families in a place like Seneca could help protect lives like Zachary's by joining the fight against militarized policing spawned by the so-called drug war. I also thought about Judith Butler's words in the New York Times. She wrote this. If we jump too quickly to the universal formulation, all lives matter, then we miss the fact that black people have not yet been included in the idea of all lives. But as I stood there in the parking lot where Angela Hammond's 19-year-old son had been gunned down, how could I get into any of those things? I couldn't. I took a deep breath, held her hand between mine, and said something I hope more people in Seneca will start saying out loud. You're right, I said. Zachary's life mattered. Chenjirai Kumanyika is a professor of communications at Clemson University. His commentary is part of a broader essay posted on NPR's Code Switch blog. I want to be a cop! I want to be a cop. Well, we have brought you team coverage on the pretrial hearings of the Freddie Gray case. Then the next hearing is scheduled for September 10th, as Brian mentioned. That's where the change of venue will be requested. So we're going to go in depth on the details of today's hearing with attorney Warren Alperstein. Thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Good to be here. So you said that that was a bombshell. It the really. There's six separate trials. It, it really was. It was uh, unexpected. I was in the courtroom, and I don't think. Uh, uh, anybody expected that decision to be made today by Judge Williams. Now, how does that affect the state's case? Well, it affects it in a number of ways. Uh, it's always a... T keep in mind, the state wanted to join certain defendants, officers together in the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the reason why they do that is it, it allows them to strategize certain ways to make their case better. They opposed the, any motion uh, to sever or split up the defendants as the defense attorneys wanted to do. So that being said, there are now six different trials. And whenever you have six different trials, or multiple trials for that matter, between co-defendants, there are a number of challenges. The first of which is the state's in a position now that they have to decide which defendant's going to go first. Right. And that's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. Do you try one of the officers like Miller or Nero or simply charged with misdemeanors, that being second-degree assaults? Right. Or do you try the officer Goodson? who is at the top of the chain, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, who's charged, as you know, with, with second-degree murder? Or do you try one of the officers in the middle, if you will, that are charged with the manslaughter? And then you know, all the witnesses who are going to have to be prepped. It's exactly right. So one of the other challenges the state you know, will, will have to, to endure is, is that every time a witness testifies in a trial, they are subjected to impeachment. Mm -hmm. That is, did they, are, they making a prior, are they making an inconsistent statement? So every statement that they make at a trial will be compared to any statement that they previously made, the, uh, be, it a, be it at a previous trial mm -hmm. or... Interviews. Exactly. And so as you get further down the road and through different trials, again, every statement that, the, that a, a state's witness will make 
can then be examined by the defense attorney to say, hey, is there something different they're saying now than they said before at one of the earlier trials? And then you got to think about a change of venue as well. You know, Brian touched on that as well. Are all the trials going to be here? or And then you're going to have to worry about having a tainted jury pool. That's exactly right. So there's always, of course, the scenario that whoever gets tried first is acquitted. So, as we saw now, we already have some protesting today. If, somebody's if, if, if the first one gets acquitted, do we have civil unrest? Do we have just protesting or do we have rioting? Mm -hmm. If you have rioting, how does that affect the jury pool, the citizens, if it stays in Baltimore City, who are potential future jurors? Can they maintain a fair, fair and impartiality in the subsequent trials? And certainly any civil unrest absolutely would affect that. What can you tell us about the judge? I heard he was a no-nonsense kind of judge. judge. Judge Williams is an independent thinker. He's bold. He's the perfect choice. That's why he was appointed by the administrative judge in Baltimore City to, to, to uh, preside over this case. So on the one hand, it was unexpected, but it's not unexpected that Judge Williams would, uh, would, would make a decision that would be you know, somewhat surprising because he, at the end of the day, has to balance two things. One is... The, 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 the court's interest in judicial economy, which is the idea of moving things along, mm -hmm. you know, re conserving resources. So balancing that need versus the absolute need to uh, ensure that defendants receive a fair trial. And he found, you know, unequivocally that, hey, it's uh, the, the defendants, you know, need for a fair, uh, fair uh, trial overrides any other interests. I think we'll be seeing this guy in here next week. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for coming Thank in. you. My All pleasure. Right. Well, stay tuned. I want to be a cop. Yeah. I want to be a cop. Meanwhile, a Black Lives Matter march disrupted the Minnesota State Fair over the weekend. And because they are incredibly anti-cop, incredibly hateful, they started chanting this violent rhetoric against officers. Peace in the blanket! Cry like bacon! Peace in the blanket! Cry like bacon! Peace in the blanket! Cry like bacon! Pigs in a blanket, fry like bacon. Yeah. This happened on a weekend where a Texas deputy was murdered. He was shot 15 times at close range. The guy emptied his entire 40 caliber pistol into Darren Goforth. Allegedly, the guy's name is uh, the, the person who allegedly did this, Shannon Miles. So on a weekend where that's happening, you are shouting about why you want to, how you want to kill cops. Now, the march's organizer, activist Rashad Turner, he actually defended the chant to CBS News. Not a big deal, whatever. It definitely wasn't a threat. You know, I don't know if they would have well, received it differently not. if we'd have said maybe on a stick or something like that. No, but, probably not. You know, we're, we're out there chanting. We're using our voices and to pick out a couple of words or one chant out of a whole four-hour march or protest. You know, I don't, I don't really have any more comments for them. It was kind of an impactful group of words. It was kind of a meaningful chant that you were chanting most of the time. It's a chant that we've seen happen, that we've heard happen multiple times over the last year. At many events, Black Lives Matter events across the country. Let's not pretend, oh, this is a small group of people. They actually love the cops. They would never want to wish harm on an officer. Police Federation President Dave Titus says this will not lead to improved police relations. This is not the tactic you want to take. If your goal is to actually improve your relationship with police officers out there. Statements and chants like that are just ignorant. You know, I find it absolutely disgusting. I don't think chanting uh, or, uh, you know, singing chants that are basically promoting killing police officers is peaceful. I don't think 
any cop would even particularly care if there was an apology. I, I really don't. Just, just knock it off. It is absolutely disgusting. It's hateful. And that kind of hate, that kind of promotion of the murder and death of police officers, all while, by the way, cops are protecting these protesters and giving them their right to march around and chant this hateful crap. This kind of stuff is just despicable. And it's exactly why some people are wondering if the Black Lives Matter movement is actually a hate group. In fact, this morning on Fox News, Elizabeth Hasselback, she was wondering that question. She was talking with a conservative commentator, African-American, Kevin Jackson. Kevin, why has the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, not been classified yet as a hate group? I mean, how much more has to go in this direction before someone actually labels it as such? Well, they should do it, but unfortunately, it's being financed by the uh, the leftist. And ironically, it's it's people that have nothing, really no concern at all about black lives, uh, people like George Soros. And of course, it's it, it's a trickle-down theory. Are we really bringing George Soros? Come on, dude. On the trickle-down uh, on the left with this uh, going forward. But the, the sad part about it is the impact that it's going to have in the black community and the fact that it takes away so much thought about what really is the problem in the black community, which is a lack of black, whole black families. And what it allows people to do is sort of say, hey, let's point the finger at everything but where it really needs to point. Uh, if we had more black families whole in the, in the community, we, we right. would have a lot less of this. If we had clergy who were willing to support real issues and change in the black community, we'd have a lot less of this. And, of course, we've got the Congressional Black Caucus who actually loves this type of strife. So here's the thing. Should they be labeled a hate group because of the hateful things they say and chant? No, they should not. They 100 percent should not be labeled a hate group. When we are labeling groups that are engaging in constitutionally protected speech— Labeling such a group as a hate group ends up having a chilling effect. Because the only reason that you would be doing that is because you want to try and silence that group. I understand why you want to silence people like this, but everything they're doing is constitutionally protected. Now, if they start to organize actual crimes, well, then you go after them for that. But this whole idea, oh, we're going to label things hate groups because they're hateful. Sorry, no, I don't like when it's done on the right. I don't like when it's done on the left. We should be having a community that engages in conversation. Now, I like civil conversation. I like civil debates. I like to actually have those conversations with people who are willing to listen to the other side and then listen to what you say and then react to what you say and then make their own. It's like a normal conversation. Now, they're unwilling to have that. A lot of the elements within the Black Lives Matter movement are unwilling to have normal conversations, and so they resort to the pigs in the blanket, fry them like bacon nonsense. But they have every right to do that. The same way I have every right to come on this radio show and speak out against them. Although I technically don't have the right to come on the radio, but I can certainly go outside and I'll go to a nice little parklet because no one ever goes to any of these parklets and I feel like maybe that would be a good meeting space. It'll be totally empty. There'll be plenty of space for people to gather. And I will call these people out as the lunatics that they are. I get to do that. The same way they get to call me a lunatic. That is the country that we live in. I'm proud to live in a country that does not silence the opposition by simply putting a hateful label on a hateful group. Earlier today, L.A. County firefighter Dennis Vineyard was shot and killed battling a blaze at a suspected Compton drug den. We're at the Vineyard home right now, and uh, Lieutenant Vineyard's oldest son, Derek, has agreed to uh, talk with us for a moment. Derek, if you could come down here, please, for just a second. Look, I know this is tough, but um, how do you feel right now? 
How do you think I feel? I think it's typical. Typical how? Well, this country's becoming a haven for criminals, so what do you expect? You know, decent, hardworking Americans like my dad are getting rubbed out by social parasites. Parasites? Blacks, browns, yellow, whatever. I don't understand. You're saying that you think maybe your father's murder was race-related? Yeah, it's race-related. Every problem in this country is race-related, not just crime. It's like immigration, AIDS, welfare. Those are problems of the black community, the Hispanic community, the Asian community. They're not white problems. Derek, aren't those really issues that deal more with poverty? No, you know, no. They're not products of their environments either. That's crap. Minorities don't give two shits about this country. They come here to exploit it, not to embrace it. What does this have I mean, to do? I mean, millions of white European Americans came here and flourished, you know, within a generation. So what the fuck is the matter with these people? They have to go around shooting at firemen. What does this have to do with the murder of your father? Because my father was murdered doing his job, putting out a fire in a fucking nigger neighborhood he shouldn't have even given a shit about. He got shot by a fucking drug dealer who probably still collects a welfare check. A local fire lieutenant suspended for posting racist remarks online. Good evening, everybody. I'm Keith Coons. I'm Ann Nyberg, the mayor and the union representing that fire official, speaking with News 8 about this incident. News 8's Jason Newton is live in New Haven outside Engine 16 in the Mars Cove section of the city where the suspended lieutenant is based. Jason. And Keith, the lieutenant has been suspended without pay for the entire month of September. The comments that he allegedly made touched a very personal nerve with New Haven's Mayor Tony Harp. Now, the comment has since been removed, but News 8 obtained a screenshot from an anonymous source. I am a person who was called that name um, in elementary school and high school, and I'll tell you it's very demoralizing and uh, very hurtful. New Haven Mayor Tony Harp got very personal in explaining her outrage after a member of the New Haven Fire Department is accused of posting racist remarks to his Facebook page. My people helped to build this country on slave labor. I am enraged by that comment, but we've got to go through a process. This post with the racial slur showed up under the name of Kevin Owens, who has been identified as a veteran lieutenant with the New Haven Fire Department. The comment was found under a story posted on the Facebook page for a right-wing British group named English and Proud. Owens was suspended immediately, a decision his union agrees with. And if it's true, you know, it's very hard to defend stupidity. Racism cannot be accepted in our uh, in our city, it shouldn't be accepted anywhere. The city is in the process of adopting a policy and penalties on social media usage. The union says they aren't moving fast enough, and they're calling for harsh and strict penalties for violators. The union also wants tougher penalties for Owens after the racist remark. And they've been dragging their feet, and I've been telling the members, somebody's going to get hurt with the social media and not having a policy. So it's time to put this social media policy together. The city of New Haven is what's called a majority-minority city, with African Americans making up 35% of the population. Mayor Harp and the union call the derogatory comments hurtful and destructive, but stress it is in no way a reflection of the overall department. It's not always an easy fit, but we have shown that we can do it. That's what's made us great, and that's what will make all of our departments great, and we are going to get it right in New Haven. 
Now, both the mayor and the union say they are calling on the entire department to undergo cultural sensitivity training in hopes to avoid these types of conflicts in the future. Now, Lieutenant Owens will have to stand before the Board of Fire Commissioners, who will ultimately decide his fate after the suspension. We're live tonight in New Haven. Jason Newton, News 8. Do you camp nigger? Of course. Everyone calls me a camping nigger. A verbal assault ruins a camping trip for one local family. They say they're victims of a hate crime. And tonight they're hoping the Nevada County DA's office presses charges. It happened at Rollins Lake over the weekend. And as Fox 40's Doug Johnson reports, that family says their trip turned racist and violent really fast. Well, I've been in car accidents. You know, you go through tense and scary situations in life, but nothing like this. Kanisha Allen says she's still in shock about what happened at her family's camping trip near Rollins Lake last weekend, threatened with what they thought was a weapon by a man who was screaming racial slurs at them. The guy ran down the hill with a shovel, and you're in the dark. I thought he had a, a shotgun. Allen says at first her family's reunion started very peaceful. I uh, have fun on the lake. We pitch the tents, we bring the food, we cook the ribs. But after that first night, a second group came to the campsite next to theirs on Friday. Some of the other campers from the rowdier group were just staring over and making racial comments. But Allen and her family ignored it. We let it roll off of our backs. And the next night, she says one man in particular started to yell at her family using even more hateful language. I didn't come here to sleep next to any effing ends. Allen says that's when her family had had enough and told campsite employees to help defuse the situation. But it only made matters worse, with campsite employees telling Fox 40 the same man also threatened them. Whatever was said infuriated the main aggressor of the site. And all you hear is, in, 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 I'm going to kill you effing ends. That's when that man started to charge their campsite. The cell phone video shows those tense moments. I got it. It was terrifying. I have a nine-month-old daughter, and I grabbed her, and the only thing that I can think of was, you need to go down the ravine and hide next to the water, because we didn't know what was happening. In the chaos, Allen's mother, who was in her 60s, fell, receiving cuts and bruises to her face. And have to relive some of the things that she had gone through in her younger years. Today, it is almost unbelievable. Allen's family called the police, who found the man trying to leave the campsite as he heard sirens. No weapons were found on him, so he was not arrested. But the Nevada County Sheriff's Office says the investigation is still ongoing, and the DA may still press charges. But that's not good enough for Allen. Didn't think that he was drunk, and they didn't find any weapons on him, and for some reason or another decided to let him go. We had expressed that we feared for our lives, you know, and still nothing was done at that point. Doug Johnson reporting for us tonight. A campsite manager says that the man and his party who allegedly attacked the other family have been banned from the campsite. Sheriff deputies say after their investigation is complete, the suspect could be charged with threatening a weapon and possibly a hate crime. Damn you, Obama. All right, President Obama is doing something that a lot of other presidents haven't done. He's heading up to the Arctic, which is kind of interesting to a lot of people around here because the kayaktivists were very upset that... Uh, we're doing some exploration as far as drilling goes, and it seems like the other Washington was on board. So was it shocking to you to find out that uh, President Obama is uh, flying up to Alaska? I don't think he'll be meeting with Sarah Palin. I do not think. I, I don't, think you're correct I don't think. And, and then also, one of my favorite. Maybe Todd. Him and Todd could go snow machine. Yeah, one of my favorite mountains, Mount McKinley. He said, you know what, we're going to change the name back to uh, Denali. And in fact, uh, one of my good friends, uh, Captain Keith, he said after we climbed Rainier together that that was his next goal to go climb Denali. 
or Mount McKinley. I've had a lot of friends that do that. It's one of those mountains where you kind of have to drop your gear in, and then you have to kind of start moving your gear. So for people that are training for Everest, it's kind of the next step. You go from Rainier to kind of get used to what it's like to be on a glacier, and then when you go to Mount McKinley or what will be called now a Denali once again, you get used to kind of moving your gear. You get used to weather windows. And, in fact, I had a good friend of mine uh, sit up there for 45 days waiting for a weather window that never opened, and he's tried it three times now to summit and just has never been able to do it. See, I had an interesting thought about this. Do you think that this is Barack Obama opening the door, at least cracking the door open, to renaming things in the South? You start with Alaska where there nobody is. Hmm, I didn't you, think about that. You take a mountain and you take it back to the Native American name. Some people here locally are like, well, maybe we should rename Mount Rainier. That had a Native name before that. But see how that plays with something like huh. a mountain. Interesting. And then you go back and go, hey, you know that army base that's named after a Confederate general? We're going to change that now, too. Yeah, I think that's interesting, Ron. A lot of my friends that are in the climbing community don't call Mount McKinley McKinley anyway. They call it Denali. So when they're going to do it officially, yeah, I mean he's doing this officially. That's very interesting. And yes. um, to me, I can see this where he wants to change something big mm-hmm. in the the Confederacy naming that we we talked about after you th- the South Carolina. You, th- you think he does? I think he does, and I think he went to his advisors, and they're like, "We can't come out of the gate and just you know change the name of an army base." Did you read this somewhere? Or did no, you think about th- this? I'm just thinking about. Huh, this. Oh, that's good. I think we need to do a test project. Let's. What's the state with the fewest people <laughs> right. that has something named funny? And where, Let's go to Alaska. And where we could piss off Sarah Palin Correct. And, and a lot of the Republicans at the same time. I think that he's testing the waters to see John how Vayner Americans did, do. Yeah, John Vayner did not like this at all today. It, because it's interesting when you look at the Rainier stuff. We've always known it as Rainier, but there's a KPLU did a, uh, a piece today where the local Native Americans are saying, we want to change Rainier back. There were five names uh, that were used by the native peoples on Rainier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tahoma and Tacoma were two of them. Right. But they said this group that got together wanted to call it the T-Squawk, uh, which was a name that means is in, is the sky, the sky wiper. It touches the skies, but the basic translation. Sure. Uh, I don't know if, if you know that would be the, the one that they would choose. It seems like Tahoma or Tacoma uh, could be uh, something that we were kind of used to. But uh, I think that paying... Uh, tribute, in a sense, to people that were here before is going to be the new political correctness. I think going forward for the next decade, this is going to be the thing that we start to see. Where is it politically correct, or is it just the right thing to do? Because when you think, think about it's both, when you think, no, about, I think it's replacing political correctness. Because when you think about it, you know, white people, especially white men, have been in charge of making decisions. For an awful long time when it comes to naming things. I like that mountain. I'm naming it after my boy McKinley. Right. It's like, that's what you did. Yeah. And uh, John Muir one day went for an awful cold walk up Mount Tahoma there and decided, okay, well, this is going to be the Muir snowfield. Maybe it shouldn't be the Muir snowfield. Exactly. Maybe it should be the Tahoma uh, or the Tacoma uh, snowfield. And it's interesting because people in the climbing community do refer to Mount Rainier as Tahoma, Tacoma. Uh, so they do they they do understand and embrace uh, some of those names already. So it'll be interesting for me to see if uh, after this test case, because you're going to have a couple people that are mad, but not very many. Uh, it was already used by both names, as you just said. So it's a little less controversial than rolling into New Orleans and saying, "Okay, 
this statue is Ro- out. Robert E. Robert Lee's, Lee's gone. It's coming down. Or this this military base is gone, or this yeah. battleship is now renamed. Yeah. Uh, I think if he gets good support on this and the feedback is good uh, and the rollout is good, I wouldn't be surprised if you go to South Carolina uh, to like a Charleston and you say, we're going to rename yeah. X, Y, or Z. So- the gay rights movement is changing everything. While anti-gay Kentucky clerk Kim Davis is now in jail, her supporters are taking her place and they are making clear that she is not going to back down despite her her now incarceration. Uh, The biggest supporter, perhaps, is her current husband, husband of this week, Joe Davis. Uh, And he is perhaps even more outspoken than she is. Let's watch. Uh, My son will not sell. Bunning cannot bully me, my wife, or my son. She's heard to prove to them that we're not going to bend and bow for nobody. I taught my son how to stand up for what's right and what he believes in at any cost. This is is what we believe in. This is what we stand for. Bunning don't know how to pick on somebody that can handle him. The only thing he does is pick on on the weak people. No matter how long she stays there? No matter how long. I would defy him. I defy our government. We have no government in the United States no more. Okay. There was one. Okay. There was one last comment by him. This is. We're not joking. This is literally what he said. Uh, talking about the judge. Tell Judge Bunning he's a butt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, we didn't make that up. That even trumps Trump. That yeah, Trump really Trump. does. Yeah. That's better than dum dum. Yeah. Okay. You know, I did hear though because of her strong religious views that the jailers allowed her one phone call to each of her four husbands. <laughs> that was nice of them. <laughs> All right, so listen, we make fun, and, you know, I, I'm going to do my uh, southern accent. They're from Kentucky. I don't know if that counts. But going back up now. All right. So all that stuff. But, <laughs> but That's exactly how they sound. That's right. I mean, you heard it. You heard it. I'm not making it up. I couldn't see the top of his head because it was camouflaged. <laughs> yeah, know. that hat really took out. me by surprise. Yeah. I mean, really, a hunting cab. I didn't see yeah. that coming. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so... But look, the bottom line is, uh, they're the ones that are wrong. So that's why we make fun. If, if they were the ones, as he put it, that are the weak, that the judge is picking on, right, then we'd be on their side. Uh, but they're the ones trying to enforce their views on other people. We're not saying to them, you have to get gay married. We didn't tell Joe over here, like, hey, find the nearest dude and get married to him. Well, I, say, wait, 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 I can't do that. That's fair. <laughs> then I'm on your side, right? But if you say, hey, you two guys... I'm going to get into your lives and tell you you don't have the same rights as I do, uh, but I don't know, we're strong. No, 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 no. I mean, that's not standing strong for conscience. That's interfering in other people's lives. Yes. The difference between what she's doing and what they're pretending she's doing is this. They're pretending she's standing up for her religious liberty. She's being persecuted. But what she's, what's actually happening is she's being persecuted or put in jail because she's trying to force her religion on everyone else. It's nobody's trying to force anything on her. She's trying to force her own political or own religious beliefs inside of a political institution. She shouldn't be doing that. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah, and the pretending goes, I mean, it's, it's even a bit more meta. It's, it's that he is doing what Fox News has told him to do and led him to believe. And it's the idea that Christians at large are being assaulted in a significant way, that they are, they are being uh, marginalized, victimized. When really all we want is for them to act like every other religion has had to act in American history. That they believe what they believe, they do what they do, but they can't enforce it on other people. 
That's not some special designation, some subclass so, we want to make out of Christians. That's how American Buddhists act. That's how American Muslims act. So when she, they don't get to dictate what other people do day to day. When she went to file for her third divorce, what if the, the, what if the, I've never filed for divorce? Doesn't someone a clerk have to sign off on that or something? What if the clerk was like, "I'm against divorce. I'm not going to sign up. You can't get divorced. You have to stay married." In fact, the clerk would have the same exact biblical grounds. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to say that they're against divorce as they are against gay marriage. And that's not crazy. A lot of, a lot of uh, Christians still believe that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so they say this isn't about gays. Of course, that's ridiculous. He said, uh, the, uh, Joe here said, well, welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah. Or he said, welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah references obviously to gay people. And you didn't stop people eating shrimp from getting marriage licenses. You didn't stop divorced people from getting remarried you only did it against gays and lesbians so don't pretend you're the victim you're only a victim in your own mind because you don't get to bully other people anymore well that's a sad day for you and he says of the government governor Bashir he says you ain't no governor because you have no backbone <laughs> right but wait he just doesn't agree with you it's like <laughs> saying to me like oh you have no backbone that's why you're backing down. I'm not backing down I disagree with you I'm not backing down at all the governor disagrees with you George W. Bush appointee disagrees with you. That's Bunning. He's not a liberal. He's a very conservative judge that disagrees with you. The Supreme Court disagrees with you. They're chock full of conservatives, right? So we're not backing down. The, the, we have a backbone. You just don't like it because you're bigoted. Obviously, her husband is going to support her. He uh, he's he's her guy, but she also has politicians one lining up. Guys. One of one of her guys right now. Uh, <laughs> she has uh, Republican presidential candidates also lining up behind her. We've got a few. Uh, we're going to start off though with Rick Santorum. When the when a president acts unconstitutionally, the court can slap down the president. What happens if the Supreme Court acts unconstitutionally? Who has the, who gets the opportunity to challenge them? Do you think it's and Kim Davis? To, Do you think it's a county well, clerk in Rowan no, County, well, Kentucky? I, I would agree that what, what Kim Davis did, in my opinion, was heroic, and she suffered the consequences from it. She, she was, she was uh, uh, you know, obviously, I think the, the putting her in jail was ridiculous as, as an extreme position. But you know what? That's sometimes what it takes for people who uh, stand up and conduct civil disobedience uh, because the law is unjust. Mm. Well, look, I have he's answers right. to what he's saying. He's like, uh, so he's like, okay, uh, what happens when the Supreme Court acts unconstitutionally? Well, they're supposed to determine what's constitutional. That there are a lot of their decisions which I can't stand, which I think has nearly destroyed this country. Citizens United being a huge one, right? So I don't get to go around arresting Rick Santorum and all the other Republicans for taking bribes. I think they took bribes. I think that all the political campaign donations are bribes, right? But I can't. Okay, that's it. Let's, Rick, come on, come on, Rick. I, I got this. Let's mm -hmm. go. You're off. You go, right? No, I have to abide by what the Supreme Court says. So how do I address that? Well, you pass an amendment. That's the way the system works. So it's super hard. We know we're trying to pass an amendment to get money out of politics. It's wolf-back.com. Join us, okay? But that's what you do. You don't just all of a sudden stop doing your job if you're a government official because you, you kind of disagreed with the Supreme Court. That's not how it works. It seems like a really unpleasant job for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If, if that's what the, the, the job calls for, why doesn't she just go get another? She, you have so much liberty outside of that office to be as religious as you want yeah. in so many places. You can even start your own, own religion and probably get a tax exemption. Yeah. You can be you can have your liberty <laughs> anywhere all over the place. You can just put your liberty and spray it all over the place. <laughs> and no one is saying I mean, it, it, to me, it's like such a glass of half full. half. She's only focused on this one little part of her her office and I know it's her job and her career 
But that's just, the law is the law. And I think the rest of it is theater. I think we have these candidates who are using this just to rally the base again for wherever, in Iowa or other places. And um, they know better. The law is the law. Otherwise, So then, um, I don't know what exemption she's supposed to get. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't think anyone's crying out for an exemption for, say, Hillary Clinton if they find that she did, let's say, traffic in classified emails. No one's saying... There should be an exemption there. She was tired. She's flying. <laughs> it's very exhausting being Secretary of State. I don't know. These exe- you get into this gray area of exemptions. It's just so hypocritical. Well, now, when you're a public official, correct me if I'm wrong, but whenever I see a Congress uh, a senator sworn in or uh, they always have to swear in on the Bible and they, and they swear to uphold the laws of the United States Constitution. So doesn't a public official, don't they all, I mean, maybe they don't all have a ceremony, but isn't that their job? They are swearing to uphold the laws and the Constitution of the United States. So the Supreme Court says, this is what the Constitution says. She says, well, that thing I said about upholding it, it just sometimes. Sometimes if I feel like it, sometimes if it lines up with a book that was written 2,000 years ago in another country and then it was translated four or five different languages down, that's what I'm talking about. black everything because when I met him that's what he was wearing black hats black hoodie black jeans black shell toe kicks and he immediately made an impression on me because I had never seen a white man commit to a monochromatic color scheme outside of a Backstreet Boys video but I never thought that that impression would be romantic or sexual I mean guys come on he was old He was really old. He was so old. I was 17 and he was 24. Ancient. But when I turned 22 and he's around 29, he asked me if I would like to go hang out sometime. And I say, sure, fine, whatever. Not even thinking about it. So we go to bar, to bar, to bar until we land at the illustrious Patty Boom Booms. Now, Patty Boom Booms is a D.C.-based club where you can get your Jamaican patties on the first floor and your Boom Boom on the second floor. And when we walk in, we immediately stand out because he's the only white guy in the room. And I am probably the only black person that's not of West Indian descent. But you know what? We hightail it straight to the bar. And after the rum starts flowing and flowing, we are all family in that room. 
And so we go upstairs and we start dancing and the reggae is pumping and guys, it's like a movie. Everything slows down. And he looks at me and I look at him and we kiss right there on the dance floor. Uh, so yeah, we start um, hanging out. Take that as you will. Uh, and after a few months, I start really liking this guy. I mean, he's really smart and funny and talented. And I think that it's mutual once he starts asking me to go to dinner with his family or go hang out with his friends. And after our first big fight, he apologizes by giving me a pair of beautiful earrings. And I'm touched. This is the first time a guy I really like has ever given me a piece of jewelry. And they're beautiful, they're handmade, they're my favorite color of emerald green. But they're in the shape of Africa. And I'm just like, did this white man just give me Africa? It's not weird, it's not weird, it's totally not weird. I mean, but then a few weeks later, I asked him for a t-shirt or something so I could go to sleep. I forgot my pajamas at home. And he says, oh, yeah, um, yeah, I got something for you. It's going to be real sexy. And then he pulls out this big, red, beautiful dashiki. Now, for those who don't know what a dashiki is, it's this. It's weird, it's weird, totally weird. So eventually, I confront him about it, and he says, like, um, I don't think it's a problem for white people to be interested in African culture, and, like, what, are you, like, do you have a problem with your blackness or something? (gasps) How dare you? And then we just start fighting, and that fighting only gets worse once I found out about the sexy Japanese-American activist or the talented but slightly broken dancer or the entire South Asian section of women. And I look at all these girls, including the other black girl who's still an undergrad, and I wonder, does he really like me? Or is dating me just another way to get a little bit closer to all black everything? I get my answer. A few months later, we have fought and fought and fought, and we are not talking, but I miss him. I miss his face. I miss his dimples. And I go on Facebook just to, just to see his face. And instead of clicking right to see the new pictures, I click left, and I see the old pictures, including a picture of college-aged him with his arms wrapped around a thin, beautiful brown woman. And his hair thin and beautiful and brown, somehow magically woven into cornrows. And I felt nauseous. And eventually, I have to accept the situation for what it is. Though it's clear that I can be attracted to a white man, that I can have feelings for a white man, I don't know if I could ever really date another white man again. I think a part of me would always wonder, So when it comes to my future relationships, I'm going to make sure that my partners are a different kind of all black everything. All black everything. Black cards, black cards, all black everything. Context of white supremacy. 
Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 5th, 2015. So I have been told uh, the new number compensatory call in is 641-715-3640. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate that number again six four one seven one five thirty six forty the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate again compensatory call in uh, we'll certainly review uh, what's gone down past seven days as well as workplace racism uh, again Access code accepted. This conference is being recorded. Q&A session started. Okay, we'll try one more time. Could be major interference. I am, uh, I've kind of concluded it seems to be like there's some interference. I don't know if it's a regular thing or an all-the-time thing, but uh, it certainly seems to be uh, consistent. Uh, it's been happening for a while now. I, in fact, my whole internet uh, just went out a second uh, ago, so could be interference. Hope not. We'll stay apprised as we go. A um, couple quick thoughts um, before we get to the folks that dialed in. Number one, uh, the quick update for the story that folks heard. I think it came out kind of at the beginning of the week, the camping uh, situation. Uh, the folks that were down in Nevada. I thought, number one, I thought it was, uh, I don't even know what the correct term would be, but the racist suspect who came up with the whole Burning Man festival. I guess he did some interview this week and uh, he said that he didn't think black people liked camping. I just thought that that was even more ironic, uh, given that this took place, uh, that this incident took place uh, this week. I think black people would probably do a lot more, play tennis, go camping, all kinds of things, if there were no system of white supremacy. Anyway, but there is an update, uh, I guess. <laughs> A mediocre update. Uh, it came out, I think, on September 3rd that the uh, Nevada law enforcement uh, officials uh, that they have recommended criminal charges. Now, I didn't say that he was arrested. It didn't even say charges have been filed, just that they recommended that charges be filed. And that's another one I would ask folks to contrast. If you think uh, that if you were a black person, if you could go out and threaten and harass uh, white family, white elderly people have them falling down and cutting themselves and what if you think you could do all that and no charges, you just go about your business and rock and roll. Anywho, uh, other quick update, uh, not news related. We are, uh, doing the Katrina reading, uh, Katrina after the flood, Gary Rivlin. We just started first session was yesterday. Uh, looking forward to getting more information, uh, announced on the program yesterday. Uh, I'm, trying to read as much material as possible so we're doing an auxiliary 
book club, uh, the auxiliary, it's, it's not going to be on the program. Just to be clear about that, this is not something on the program. If folks want to share a quick word or two, that's fine, but this is not going to be on air. This is just uh, going to be something where we can share comments, uh, probably just on a forum. Uh, we just get a little uh, thread lined up, and folks can just add comments as we read through the book. I mentioned the five books that uh, I wanted to do. Uh, that I'd be interested in reading that are all related to uh, Katrina. Uh, the five books, uh, my top two choices were Five Days at Memorial, uh, which is written by a racist suspect. It's about five days at Memorial Hospital in New Orleans where uh, white doctors, they decide they lose power and they decide that they're not going to be able to evacuate everyone. So they decide that the best course of action is to start uh, killing the patients they call these mercy killings to start killing the patients that they don't think they're going to be able to evacuate and are not going to make it. So that's five days at Memorial. Uh, there was prosecution. This did go to course. The DA was black. He did prosecute this case. That's one. My second choice was Zaytun. Uh, this is also, uh, I believe it's written by a white person, but it's about a non-white, non-black male. The storm happens, the levee failure he goes out in his uh, canoe, this non-white, non-black male. He's saving a significant number of people. Eventually, he is detained, arrested, and uh, accused of being a terrorist uh, by local enforcement officials. Uh, this happened. Actually, it was more than just an OPD. It was a lot of uh, security, white security officers who ended up accusing him of being a terrorist. That's my second choice. Three other choices I had were uh, Wendell Pierce, The Wind and the Reed, uh, Douglas Brinkley, the deluge and John Barry after the flood, which is about the 1927 flood uh, in Louisiana. So those are my five choices thus far. Uh, we have four votes for Memorial five days at Memorial and two votes for Zaytun. Uh, we're going to probably start tomorrow. I'll probably done <laughs> with all this. We can start tomorrow. So unless there are three people that are going to vote for Zaytun or I guess it would be, have to be five or more people that want to vote for a different book. But those are the books. If there's anybody else who wants to read, again, this is not on the program. This is just a private read on your own. Take notes as you go, and then we'll have a thread set up so people can write online. We can you know, swap notes if you want to email to go in more detail. But just people, if you're interested in trying to learn more about uh, anything related to Katrina. Moving forward, uh, there was one other quick note I wanted to make sure that I got in if I have momentarily forgotten I'll just share later um, oh man it was right on the tip it was something that I didn't even put in oh Dylan Roof I didn't include the audio I just said I'll read it as we go Dylan Roof they did because I know people were talking I think I don't know if it was on the compensatory call in or not but someone had asked me if, if I thought that they would pursue the death penalty against uh, Dylan Roof and I said that uh, white people, they could win this one either way. I said they could do white sacrifice, death penalty. They could do, uh, no, where I said it already looks kind of like they are moving towards uh, getting rid of the death penalty. It might take a while. It might be sooner, but it kind of looks like it could be moving in that direction. And they could just miraculously get there right when it's time for him to go to court or right when it's time for him to sit, hit sentencing or whatever the case is. They could win either way, but it was announced this week that they are going to pursue uh, the death penalty uh, against uh, Dylan Storm Roof uh, down in South Carolina. That's certainly something folks can keep an eye on if you have uh, any comments you would like to share on that as well. Uh, I think 
I will pause there. Uh, that Althea Gibson uh, documentary is available. You can check that out. It's on PBS. It's online. Uh, you can watch it online if you have not been able to see it yet. But I would encourage folks to check it out. I did forget. That was my other rule I wanted to get into. The audio clip that you heard in the uh, at the end uh, about the black female and finding out that her uh, former tragic arrangement white partner uh, that it seemed like he was practicing racism with his choice of uh, partners to sexually sewer. Uh, I was on the Washington Post yesterday. Uh, this, the compensatory call in, we're not on Area 8 anyway, so I'm going to take exactly three comments uh, about that uh, because that certainly, in my opinion, is not the most important thing uh, that happened over the last week. Uh, it's not even in the top five. Uh, so I will take three. If you have something that you want to say about that specifically, uh, you should definitely get your hand up immediately because I'm going to take my three comments and once those are done, moving forward, we'll be done with that topic. And there are certainly uh, many, 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 many other things that folks can chat about. Uh, the number again, 641 Seven one five thirty six forty, and then the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, if you could share one time and then allow other folks, uh, if they have comments that they want to share, make sure everybody gets an opportunity to get whatever comments or questions that they want to add. Uh, and then once everybody gets that one chance to share, if you have other comments or questions, things that you want to add, feel free to do so. But if you can watch the background noise and just be considerate uh, that there are other people who uh, would like to share as well, that would be grand. And please don't be timid. Let's go ahead and share because it seems to never fail. We get to the end for workplace racism and there are people, wait a minute, wait a minute, I just have one more, just one second. Go ahead, get your hand up right now so that we can chat, have ample time to say whatever you like. And then workplace racism, same thing. Let's not wait till the last minute. Feel free. Everybody who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Uh, feel free to chime in. Oops, sorry about that. Some background. Uh, maybe somebody's listening to the program. Well, good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, I just said I would give you guys uh, an update on the Sandra Bland's um, hanging. Uh, there was um, there was a march. There was a march. The students wanted to have a march, you know. And so they said, "Oh, we can march with us." And I'm like, "Okay, okay, no problem." You know, kids and chin call me. I'll go. So. We had the march and marched to the city hall, and it was regular meeting, and they voted to change the name of Texas A&M University. Well, this is, you know, a black university, so they voted to change change the name from University Drive to Sandra Bland Parkway. You know, three to, three to one vote. One person didn't show up. So the next day, <clears throat> the next day there's a, there's a banquet. There's a banquet, and uh, it's for the Volunteer Firefighters Association. And 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 surprisingly enough, I didn't understand what's going on, but they were honoring they were honoring law enforcement also. So this is the Black Firefighters Association, and at the very front of the ballroom, uh, 
you know, the sheriff from Walla County and all of the deputies. So all of these white guys are at the front and all of these black people are at the back. And and all the law enforcement's getting up and the sheriff's getting up and all of the, the sheriffs and all of his white deputies got words of outstanding public service, doing a great job from all these black people in, in the town, you know, where Santa Barbara was coming to live. And I'm like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. But the black people were like, you guys are awesome. You're special. Here, take over our program. And uh, we're going to, each one of you, we're going to call your names and give you an award because you guys, you, 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 Sheriff of Walla County, you're awesome. You're just super special. So I was floored by that. And I was floored because, because not because, because I know we have problems. I know we have problems. But what floored me was I said, oh, my God, I'm in a ballroom. I said, I know I have to under." I know I have to to overcome. Sorry about that. I think you were just echoing on. I think it was somebody else had you on speaker. Go ahead. I know I had to overcome a lot of confusion, but I didn't think there were that many people. Confusion and the people who were trying to get us killed. I didn't know there were that many of us who were going to be protecting them actively, protecting the sheriff and his deputies. That many black people from my little neck of the woods protecting, standing between me and the sheriff. I got to go through that many black people. (laughs) I said, whoa, I have been just absolutely floored ever since. That's a lot of black people to go through for me to get to those people. I I just never thought that it would, I just never thought it I just never thought it was that many. So, anyway, that was my revelation, and I'm still trying to get over that. But, well, there was something else that happened with that. But, uh, anyway, that was just, like, really weird for me. I just, that's a lot of black. We're talking about black mayors, black judges. They're, like, giving the sheriff an award. He's still under investigation by the FBI and the Texas Rangers, and they've already put together a ball to give the man and his deputies an award. I was just like, whoa, I am so far, so much further behind than I thought I was. I really am. So that was my revelation. Thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions, I'm open to hearing them. Comments from anybody else? Appreciate the update from uh, Karma down in Texas. Anybody else have co- uh, comments they wanted to share? Greetings. <clears throat> Can I Greetings, sir. Greetings, sir. Good to hear from you. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, I was just thinking about uh, the uh, when, when the uh, the Black Panther. Uh, segment came on and thinking about the different uh, organizations that are identified by most people as quote-unquote black organizations although some of those organizations black people didn't uh, create them create them but uh, the majority of the membership was and still is black Uh, and the ones well, the, the identification is that, that, that is interesting is the ones that are 
nonviolent and violent. Not, I'm sorry, not nonviolent, identified as being nonviolent, and also uh, the other ones that uh, leave it on the table that their reaction is not just going to be nonviolent. Uh, sometimes mistakenly is identified by some sort of uh, line called the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, and you can get real confused on that if you uh, not study um, study the background of black people in this part of the world as well as those organizations. Uh, a lot of them uh, were not, weren't even uh, created in the South. I, I don't believe, I could be wrong, but I don't believe the NAACP was not created in the in the quote unquote southern part of, of uh what is called the United States. Uh uh the uh students for non violent coordinated committee, uh at first they were uh considered to be uh non violent, but I I do know some of the uh individuals who were members present as well as former members certainly did not carry that uh, mantle of nonviolence, uh, such as Kwame uh, Ture uh, and uh, also, uh, uh, what's, the, what's the, the, she became a Black Panther. Just can't think of her name right now. She was the, the wife of Eldridge Cleaver. Just can't think of her name right now. Uh, she started Cleaver? off with the... That's that's her. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> I I knew you would you would know because you got a photograph photograph memory compared to mine. Uh, but I I know who the person is. Yes, that's that's her name. Uh, also, in comparison, uh, there were groups that uh, did uh, leave as an option that we're not just going to be nonviolent. That was in down south, such as the Deacons for Defense. Uh, also, uh, the uh, non-white black male who uh, was a uh, a uh, had a branch of the uh, NAACP in what was that North Carolina, and uh, he decided to uh, well we're gonna have to pick up the gun on this on this issue. I just can't think of his name right now, but I know you know who I'm talking about. Uh, oh, he wrote a book, Negroes with Guns. Robert F. Williams. Uh, Robert F. Williams. Yes, that's, that's him. But uh, yeah, so if you you really, my point is, you really can't identify that by the idea of just because someone uh, was quote unquote born and raised in the South that they're going to leave. Uh, they're, they're going to just say, "Well, we're going to be. I'm going to be nonviolent." That sort of thing. I, I've 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 gotten that type of uh, reaction from a lot of black people over the years on that, on that issue. And, uh, just saying it's not necessarily, so, uh, not, it's not necessarily a, a, a straight, uh, uh, situation going on just because from where someone is from or where they spend a lot of their life at, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, that was just an observation, but, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, hello, good evening, all. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Oh, hey, that's good. Uh, 
couple of things. I'm going to did you the video I sent you on the Batman Superman trailer. Did you get it? Mm. Did you send it to my Gmail account or I believe so. Look again. I haven't uh, I haven't seen the trailer. I'm going to look again now. Okay. Uh, well, while you look through it, I'll uh, make my point because, like I said, there's a there's a Hurricane Katrina reference in it, which basically points out almost everything. Nearly full said without the sexual implications, and it also mocks what really happened as Hollywood movies often do by putting a white face on that misery when that really wasn't the case. But, hey, I just want to uh, go back to Zachary Hammond and Kim Davis. These two examples are just more ways of this... uh, this idea of white victimization. You know, Kim Davis, you know, she's breaking the law, but somehow she's just being persecuted because she's a Christian and that is just code for white people because that's, when you hear these cases, Christians are the new Dred Scott, the war Christians, all of that. That's all this is. This just code for white people are being victimized. But on the other hand, you could be like Anders Brevik and say, I'm a Christian. I did what I did because I'm a Christian. I slaughtered all these people because I'm a Christian. Immediately they'll come out and say, oh, he's not a Christian. But hey... As for uh, Zachary Hammond, as I said before, you know, there are things his parents can do. I'm not going to say them, but they're white. They know there are more things they can do for their son. But the truth is, they don't want to do anything, neither do his supporters, simply because he was killed by a white cop. You know, there's nothing there's nothing to exploit in that. Now people say, Oh, only black people get mad when one of us is killed by a white cop or a white person. You don't get mad at black on black crime. White people do the same thing. And the Zachary Hammond case is proof of that. And, you know, just to show you, that same week, James Holmes was told, you're not getting the death penalty. Never mind all the white people he killed. Never mind all the white people he shot, tried to blow up cops. We're not going to take your life. You're going to grow old in prison. Now... You would think, right, that uh, someone who shot 71 people and was 
at his lifespan, you would think there would be massive outrage, but there isn't. Because I said this was white on white criminal activity. And same with Zachary Hammond. So just don't let anybody fool you in thinking that, you know, only white cops shooting black people get the massive attention. And that somehow white people being shot by cops are don't get the attention. No, it's because y'all, it's because white people don't want the attention because they don't care. Uh, That's all I have to say. I have seen the trailer. (laughs) That is, uh, that's pretty calculated in my opinion. Um, I, I, ABC did something similar. I don't know if people saw it. They had a special on uh, Hurricane Katrina. They had uh, the victim of racism, Robin Roberts. She kind of narrated it. I thought they did something very similar. They had a lot of uh, white people. And I mean, the storm did hit like other areas. Uh, there were white people. St. Bernard's Parish did get flooded. There were white areas in New Orleans and, you know, outside of the state of Louisiana who did get impacted and even died. But I mean, but. <laughs> Tune in to Katrina next week. <laughs> I take his line. This was not an equal opportunity storm. That is total nonsense to be having images in Superman or anything else, uh, making it seem as though, oh my God, tons of white people were just stranded on their rooftops and had to wait on some fictional comic book character. That is racism at its finest. Uh, I also just wanted to add quickly on the Zachary Hammond uh, thing. I have seen so many articles like white people. And even some victims, they have been cranking those articles out for a good month now. Like, oh, my God, why isn't he getting more attention? He has gotten more attention for people complaining about him not getting uh, attention. Like, if I was not codified, like, man, I would be rabid uh, about that whole situation and probably even fussing at some victims uh, for, you know, shedding a few tears about this likely racist uh, Zachary Hammond. Um I pointed out some of the things that they were doing with the imagery before the audio clip that you heard. That was uh, Chinjira Kumanyika. Uh, he did, was on NPR. He was a guest on this program just a couple weeks ago. Uh, and I'm not sure if that was before or after Hammond had been killed. But after having heard that, I was like, wow, I need to, we need to see if we can get him back on the program to discuss this. Because, I mean, I could not disagree more vehemently, um, almost with everything that he said, like, the vast majority of black people. I remember when people were saying that last year, the vast majority of black people who get killed by police or in any way, shape, form, you don't know their name. It's no hashtag, nothing. Like it doesn't matter if it's a child, an elderly person. Most people don't even know Katherine Johnson and the black female in Atlanta. She was 92. They shot police shot and killed her and sprinkled, uh, I think cannabis on her or some nonsense to try to justify shooting and killing her to say she was some kind of uh, thug gangster. Most people don't know her name. Didn't hear about the case. Nothing. Uh, that's the vast man, particularly when you look at it globally. I mean, they kill black people in the hundreds of thousands every day and who cares so it i find all of it horribly offensive and i think it's even more skilled white people they are extraordinary at getting their victims to come out and be the messenger for all of their white supremacist propaganda i will mute my line if there are other folks who have commentary feel free 
Oh, and some of the victims. Yes, Puff, I got I was just going to say real quick. Some of the victims in the Colorado shooting uh, case with uh, white night, white night terrorist uh, James Holmes, some of the victims of the family members, they didn't want him to get the death penalty. Um, I do remember there was some it wasn't like, you know, a ton of white people were angry. But I do remember reading some of the dialogue about that. And it was not it was not uniform among the victims. Some of them, they didn't they didn't support the death penalty for him either. Go ahead, Puff. Okay, uh, greetings, thank you. Greetings, this is uh, Puff. Um, can I be heard? Yep. Okay, good deal. Um, two notes, you know, I was listening to some of the uh, commentary before the show came on, and um, I noticed, like, a pattern that white people are trying to rewrite history. I was listening to the Althea Gibson uh, documentary documentary on PBS, uh, they are now trying to, quote-unquote, soften uh, the racist things that they've done in the past, um, like uh, when when uh, Althea Gibson was playing tennis in New York, um, they were saying, you know, that uh, she didn't encounter any, any slurs, people were probably not hollering uh, the word in, or, you know, at her, and you know, it was kind of like softened, kind of. And it's like, well, no, that's not entirely true. You know, Did you say that they were not racist. saying the word nigger? Or... I'm just trying to make sure I heard you clearly. Did you say that in the, in the segment they were saying that they weren't calling her nigger and things when she was in New York playing tennis? Are you, with, are you there, Puff? Are you there, Puff? Can you hear me? Uh oh, I was just trying. Are you there, Pop? I was just trying to make sure I heard you clearly because I didn't. It wasn't clear. Hmm. I don't know if she uh, got disconnected. I was just trying to get clarification. I hope. Uh, hope she didn't get lost. And I, I hope I'm being heard. Are folks? Uh, can folks hear me? I can hear you. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, it looks like if, if we lost her, if you, if something happened and you got disconnected, Puff, just uh, ring back in. Because I, I just didn't hear, uh, I was trying to hear, hear what you, uh, hear what you were saying. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, I, I thought she said that she was saying that they were, like, trying to soften it, the, the racism that Althea Gibson encountered, uh, by trying to say that, uh, I didn't know if she said that they did not call her nigger and things like that, or I just wanted to make sure I heard her clearly. If you got just if you got disconnected, Puff, just ring back in and I'll uh, get you back on the line because I wanted to, I just wanted to make sure I hear, heard you accurately. Uh, if there are other folks while we're waiting for her to ring back, if there are other folks uh, who have not shared, who had commentary, things they wanted to share, feel free chime in. Please do not wait till the last minute. That is strange. <laughs> it's like uh, I got disconnected before, and then it looks like uh, quite a few folks got, I don't know if they got knocked off or maybe they just uh, disconnected, but it seemed like we lost folks kind of at the same at the same time. Um, if other folks have comments they uh, wanted to make sure they got in, feel free, chime in, hand up, and let's not wait till the last minute. Hmm. How strange. Hopefully it is not interference. Uh, folks are meandering uh if you if folks that 
would be interested in doing the auxiliary reading, if you could drop an email, untiljustice at gmail.com. You could do an email, uh, or I guess you could do Facebook as well. That would be fine. But uh, if you could let me know, like, today, Saturday, uh, that would be great. So we can decide and, and move forward with all that. Uh, looking forward to getting uh, new content, new reading a new book. I, I was just able to finish Shots on the Bridge. Um, folks are lollygagging. Look back over um, some of the other things that stood out. Oh, the Kim Davis thing, yeah. Um, I thought that was so important uh, for so many reasons. Like, it's great now that she can be the spokesperson. Uh, when people think about somebody who does not like gay people, it would not surprise me uh, if they come with a black person who, you know, is supporting her or uh, at least publicly uh, talks as if they have, you know, great venom or great disdain or at minimum they strongly oppose, you know, same-sex marriage and, you know, they're willing to, you know, defy authority and if that means being imprisoned or whatever the case may be, it would not surprise me at all uh, for that to be the case. But I just, I love having her mug shot up, <laughs> having the whole, the only thing that I, I really uh, dislike about this is the gay rights arm of the white supremacy movement. They've done a great job with those false equivalents uh, in saying that uh, she is like Bull Connor uh, and George Wallace when he was standing uh, defiantly blocking black people uh from you know going into the school and what have you that you know saying equating this with racism white supremacy which i think is totally uh incorrect and i think that adds a lot of confusion because a lot of victims hear that uh because of the power of white supremacy victims hear that and then we start repeating it and thinking that 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 is uh accurate and and thinking that yes this is the same thing when it is totally not and i have seen a lot of that um i don't know if we got puff back or not i was trying to get her her commentary did we get puff back yeah, you did. Sorry about that. I got okay. cut off. I don't know at what part I got cut off, but I was trying to because I was I was because I didn't hear. I was like because uh, you were talking about the Althea Gibson piece and you were saying that they try to soft pedal it, and I didn't hear if you said that they were suggesting that she was not called a nigger and other racist slurs. I didn't hear. I just wanted to get clear about what she said. Yes, that's correct. Okay, they yes, they, they said they that said she. That. They said that she was called uh, a nigger, that they they did get some of that. They just said that it wasn't everybody. Uh, they said that some people did want to see good tennis, but she did get called a nigger and, you know, some other racist names. Yeah, but then they go on to say that, you know, she was um, she was she was not called this. But how can you say that on one point and then on the other point say, well, she was, she was not allowed to stay in dressing rooms or hotels or, you know, and all that. I mean, somebody must be, you know, perpetrating this, you know, racist on her. It, it's not, you know, as though some people magically, uh, the tennis, the ATA, the Tennis Association, somehow magically put these stipulations on her. And then, but all the rest of the people, they were on her side. It was like a good and bad type thing that they were trying to portray. And it was like, it's not, it's not, it's like not like it. It's just, I don't know. It was just, it was just saying they were, they were, they were not, just like you said just now, you know, with some people, you know, not doing that. And it's like, well, 
I believe, instead of saying, you know, well, this is the way, and being honest, this is the way the white people felt at that particular time. And, you know, now, comparing it to now, you know, with Serena Williams, and they were saying how, you know, she has, the, the Serena Williams have to go through the same thing. And it's like, well, yeah, she has to go through the same things. It's just not as maybe blatant, you know. Althea Gibson didn't have to deal with, you know, a, a, her white opponent coming out with, with big, you know, false, you know, with, with the pillows and, and that type of thing, additions to her body, trying to mimic her quote-unquote body style. And the other point I wanted to make was among the gays, you know, which you, which I called in and you were talking about, um, where the Kentucky clerk, you know, was saying, you know, she represent to me. She represents conflict among white people, just like uh, the doctor that Mr. Fuller talks about, where he's like, um, where he's saying about you know the Barzinis versus the Colions, and you know this is an internal struggle among them. You know, the white supremacist view is with the gays. You know, you have to, you can't say anything about the gays unless it's. If you do say anything about the gay people is bullying, you know what I mean, then you're gonna be classified as a bully and just like Mr. Fuller says, you know, you might you might end up in, in jail behind that. You know what I mean? And and sooner or later, you know, it might it might get to that point. But um it just it to me it represents a struggle between them. You know, and, and, and the the clerk's position is the conservative you know, Christian position, which is, you know, we don't, you know, allow gays and this type of thing. And it's like, but how can you, I just, I just, I just cringe every time I hear, you know, them try to compare the gay situation to, you know, the civil rights situation. And it's not like that, but, you know, it's, 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 it would have to be, in other words, to me, it would have to be mutually exclusive of each other. They couldn't claim that because there are black gay people. And so it's like, well, how do they fit into your whatever you're trying to do? It's like it doesn't it doesn't make sense at all. Not even on the not even on the surface it doesn't make sense. Because, you know, it's just it's not the same, you know, opposition. It's like gay is a behavior and, you know, and I know they say that you're born gay. That was the that was the whole purpose of that. It was like you're born black. So it's like trying to compare those two things doesn't is not equivalent in my book. Okay, go ahead, and everybody else can shoot now. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody that we have not heard from, uh, feel free to. Yeah, chime. May I, yes, sir. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers. Another another amazing, amazing intro. I, I just wanted to tie something in. I believe the gentleman, uh, the alleged um, uh, person who uh, they said assassinated the cop, I think his name was Shannon J. Miles, if I'm correct. Um, uh, Shannon J. Miles, uh, the person that was supposed to have executed the cop while he was pumping gas in Texas. Um um, Dave, I noticed in the segment that about the Black uh, Lives Matter was about the pigs in the blanket, and I've noticed that Fox News is always leading the charge. They have really ramped it up, and they are really trying to uh, uh, tie the Black Lives uh, Matters movement with this particular individual. And apparently, I've been uh, researching a little bit. He has a history of mental 
mental issues. He's been hospitalized a number of times. Um, so he has a paper trail of mental illness, kind of if we could tie that into the Colorado theater shooter. I'm curious to see if there's going to be um, some parity, but I doubt it's just, again, we live in a system of white supremacy racism. So even, um, um, it, you know, even in the criminal justice, that system is still intact and it's going to be a two-tiered thing. But, but uh, Bill O'Reilly and all the, uh, all the talking heads at the Fox and some of the other conservative, they have ramped it up um, um, uh, about the Black Lives Matter movement. In fact, I would not be surprised if Brightboard and the boys try to do some infiltration clown theater type stuff to try to get somebody on tape saying something. So I would not be surprised if, uh, what's his name, the, the person who does the little, uh, the, did the thing with the acorn, dressed up like the pimp, probably got his name, but he's tied to Breitbart. And when they, uh, they raked uh, the, 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 the black woman, uh, when she gave a speech about uh, uh, granting uh, some particular grants to some farmers, and they basically... Shirley Sherrod. Uh, yeah, Shirley, yeah, exactly. And they're, they're very good at taking a tape and editing it in such a way to be able to convey a particular point uh, 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 that supports their agenda. But anyway, another great show. Um, I look forward to and the rest of it. I will mute myself. Uh, thank you for allowing me to share. Mm-hmm. Shirley Sherrod is awesome. I'm a big. I have her autobiography right here. <laughs> should have been. Uh, should have been in the book club. I just want to make sure I get on record as well. That uh, audio uh, clip that you heard, uh, where I guess they were saying that they were out of the state fair in Wisconsin. Uh, protesting and and saying uh, pigs in a blanket fry like bacon like I just want to make sure I get that on record it is very easy for white people to come along and pay some black people to go out and chant that like that is the most I mean that is the most nonsensical thing in the world I mean I guess it's possible that that you know could have been legit and that these you know were some just black people on their own decided they wanted to do this and whatever vgq but i just want to make sure i get that on record that that to me is suspicious and it would just it's very easy for white people just as you were just saying to get a sound clip or an image now you got your meme and whatever you got your talking point already bang ready to go you just dump it to bill o'reilly and fox and they'll do the rest or breitbart they'll do the rest Folks are sluggish. Any other comments? Don't know. Folks being sluggish. I hope we don't wait till uh, we get ready to transition to uh, workplace racism. Did anybody uh, have any thoughts on the the situation in uh, Baltimore? Uh, They did not throw the charges out, but they did decide that they were going to try the officers uh, separately. Uh, If, you know, my understanding is correct, that would translate into six different uh, hearings. Like... Hmm. I don't know. Did uh, folks have any thoughts on that or were folks paying attention to that? It probably will cause a situation where people will grow tired of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know what anybody else thinks, but the moment I saw the black people on there, that black people with charged also, I, I think that they, they're going to put the heaviest burden on the black people. Oh, yeah. I kind of agree. Go ahead. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say I kind of agree. I definitely agree with what Puff said, and I definitely agree with the gentleman before her 
that, you know, you can stretch this out, you know, so long that, you know, because we have, you know, we live life and you can stretch it out so long um, that you say people get tired. And in that case, you can have, I mean, if you're not paying attention, somebody could be let off, you know, or this is a not guilty verdict, this is a not guilty verdict. And then it's kind of like, hey, that don't mean that, but then you look around and, and the three blacks, and we never did see on the video or anything like that, you know, the ones who sit to prison, you know, literally for the rest of their lives. So I just, you know, it's it's just part of the stuff that, um, you know, white people do. You know, they can draw things out and, and uh, till you get tired of it or, you you know, life goes on and you got to get back to living, you know, they can do that. You know, so that's, that's what I think with that. Oh, but since I'm here, let me, you know, you said three, you said three comments about the girl. Um, I don't know what I think about that. I, I, it would just seem like if you get to know people before you, you know, either begin to date or get into, uh, you know, sexual intercourse or what have you, because I, I, you know, know that, you know, sexual intercourse can change the course of a relationship in ways that, you know, you just don't think of. And it just seemed like to me, like she rushed into something. And then, you know, she talked a lot of, they were doing a lot of arguing. So I'm sitting up there saying myself, you know, if we got to do all that arguing, this to me just isn't a relationship because I wouldn't want to, you know, I understand men, women, you know, we have arguments, but I don't want to be in a relationship with somebody that I'm arguing all the time. So, you know, I, I, I kind of, um, I just kind of think it falls on her. I think she went into something, um, you know, just much too quick. She didn't get to know this guy. I think if she had got to know this guy, uh, been in his apartment, seen what he has, I think she should. She would have been able to draw some conclusions, uh, you know, before she got to a relationship. But once she entered into the relationship, and uh, I was listening to the archives this past week, and I came across that show, that interracial relationships are sad, it turned out to be a very sad situation. With that, I'm... Uh, Two hundred questions not asked seem like uh, there were things that she did not know, pertinent information that she did not know uh, until down the road. <laughs> Definitely would be a plug exactly. for getting more information mm-hmm. early on. Definitely before you mm-hmm. get to the bedroom. Exactly, exactly, and it just seemed like from at least you know from what the piece, the clip that you say, it was something about her meeting, they getting on the dance floor, and she kisses them. You know, and this this starts this. Uh, trajectory of, I guess, a friend. I, I don't even know if you say a friendship, you know. And next thing you know, you're 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 intimate, and and now you're discovering things that um, you don't like. So I'm kind of like he's like you say, asking questions and then being observant of his actions, you know. And you you'll be able to tell. I think that I I really would like to think that you'll be able to tell if this is something true, not that I would want it to be, but you know if this is something true or if this is some type of fetishism. And I think a sad thing I hear, and I might be wrong today with this, but I think there are a lot of these uh, relationships, particularly with with uh, uh, you know black females and white guys, that it does come down to fetishism. And after a while, once they get what they want or what have you, you know, then they move on. So I definitely agree with what you said, asking questions and, and being observant. 
and missed me. And I think she would have found a lot of things out. But I think she moved too fast. And that and that worked right in his favor if he had a fetish, you know, that she moved fast. So, you know, it just worked right into his hands. I'm in the line. Not understanding racism. That's... That's, I would say that's the critical thing, you know, all, you know, on top of everything, yeah. uh, not understanding what racism is, how it works, not understanding what it means to be white. Like that is critical, like messing up on that and things can go downhill really, really fast. And that environment, alcohol, say that all the yeah. time, sobriety, <laughs> sobriety would be best and one of the worst combinations in the universe white people and alcohol is just a horrible combination but i mean it's really i I can only say for white people they're not ignorant about racism it really is just totally exploiting and taking advantage of someone who is totally clueless about what's happening like just totally exploiting and taking advantage uh, of that person i think mr fuller encourages us to think of it as uh, a child rape, really, because I mean that's what you're doing. You're taking a, some, you're taking advantage of someone who has a very childish, naive understanding of the world that we're in, uh, which is dominated by white supremacy, racism. Uh, we missing anybody? Uh, anybody hadn't shared? Yes, me. Good evening, Gus, and good evening to the callers and listeners. I'm happy to be here. I want to say to Althea Gibson, salute to her. Um, I was a little perplexed about this guy talking about Mr. Zachary. He sounded extremely sympathetic, and I asked myself why I'm sure this guy was a black guy. I'm not sure, but let me ask you, was this guy a black guy talking about how he felt that um, he deserved justice like anybody else? And, um, you know, he couldn't answer the question or his mother said, why can't all lives matter? Now, was this a, guy, a black guy doing this narration and he was telling the story? I want to make sure I'm correct with respect to that. Uh, yep, that was Chenjirai Kumanyika. Uh, he was a guest on the program uh, very recently, <laughs> very, very recently. Well, I kind of felt, I've got to be honest with you, I was not feeling his pain whatsoever. And the fact of the matter, if uh, white people can't get out and protest and they'd rather wait for the natural law of things to flow, unlike black people who take it to the streets if we're very, very upset, I didn't like that comment either. And so I, I don't feel any pain for Mr. Zachary nor his family because um, that's one isolated incident. I mean, maybe there's more, but I'm not feeling the pain. I'm sorry if I'm sounding a little whatever. No, I'm not really sorry, but let me move on. Freddie Gray, six different trials. Who will be first? Who will be second? Who will be third? Change of venue. The judge, Mr. Williams, is he a black guy or is he a white gentleman, white man? Do you know? I haven't seen a photograph. Does anybody know? Is he a white person, non-white person? Who's white? The judge in the The Freddie Gray. I, I saw... I saw a uh, photo, and he was a black man. Well, I was really kind of surprised. Yeah, he's a black man. Okay, I'm in the line. Well, it's interesting that they're having six different trials. Wow, this would be the trial of the century. Trials of the century here. <laughs> I, I, I can't. I just can't wait to see how this turns out. Now, the Boston people, the guy, the Boston, there was a guy in Boston, I guess he was a firefighter, and he uh, wrote something on his Facebook, and now they're saying, oh, you know, we should have had guidelines for Facebook, uh, you know, in terms of our employees, how to use it. My thing 
Uh-oh, it happened again. Lost my headphones. Uh, the person that dialed in... I'm sorry about that. Uh, oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Oh no no! I it it, it just it just went dead. I, I I it's some dead space. I'm just wondering. Uh, oh, I was in another blockage. No, I was trying to uh, nab the uh, switchboard, and I, I just stalled for a moment. So I was trying to figure out the oh. the other line. I'm still even a little. Okay, I'm, I'm going to mute myself. I was just concerned. This oh okay, right on. Did we miss anybody? I'm just a little thrown off by. Uh, I'm, I'm uncertain if I uh, missed a hand or if I got everybody. Uh, I think every I think everybody that dialed in, uh, if you had a hand up, you should be with us. I think. Okay. Yeah, I think we got everybody. Okay, so uh, we have uh, I guess about ten minutes or so until we get to uh, workplace racism. Someone did write in. Uh, a workplace racism incident they wanted to share, so I'll include that as well. Uh, any other commentary, uh, folks that already shared, if you had something else you wanted to add about any of the other incidents? I think this is one of the few times we, we almost hit uh, all of the news segments. Uh, someone had something, uh, a comment. Um, except the McKinley, I, I thought that was of some significance as well. Um, breaking up a little bit. I will say with the firefighter uh, situation in Connecticut, I think they have a, a pretty lengthy uh, history of uh, racism with regards to the fire department. Now, I'd have to look at the different uh, cities and what have you to make sure, because uh, I'm, I'm not certain that it's all the same department. But, I mean, Connecticut is not very big regardless. So, um, But they have a, a history uh, of black people that were on the fire department alleging that they were being mistreated and it was just a really terroristic uh, environment. I thought even with that clip that this guy, he only got suspended for a month. Like, that's it? <laughs> I think uh, I think you should be this uh, firefighter in Florida. I'm, I'm of the opinion that should like disqualify you from that sort of job where lives are dependent and that's the way that you are behaving. That's the way that you think of black people. Uh, it's not unusual. Uh, the same things uh, happened uh, during my uh, years on the uh, fire department, and it's probably still happening. Well, not probably, still happening now. Uh, just like you say, white people don't get fired; they get transferred. Uh, they would they may demote the person, and then that person, like Tom Brady, would go through. Uh, uh, different different uh, appeals and and uh all they have to do is stick with it stick with the appeals and stick with it through the end and eventually uh even after the uh the modem they would take the test again and get promoted back to the rank that they were or perhaps even get promoted beyond what they were before when they got into quote-unquote trouble so it's it's not unusual at all I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've saw that, you know, on a common basis amongst white people on the fire department uh, that at one time was on the tutelage of Charles Phillips, as well as during the whole time that I was on the fire department. And I'm sure before, and I'm sure it's happening right now as we speak. Oh, Not unusual. Absolutely. 
all areas of people activity. And even the white guy. Uh, the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just, I, I, go ahead. I was just going to say real quick that even the the white male who was saying that he wanted a code and he wanted to get this done, let's stop dragging our feet. Even that, I didn't even interpret that as I'm not racist. The same way with the Althea Gibson thing. The white fans that were not calling her a nigger, I didn't think that they were not racist. I just thought, you know, they were a little bit more codified. Like, oh, yeah, we'll sit quietly and watch this nigger play tennis. Like, okay, I know white people can do that. That's the white guy that was saying we need to hurry up, get this code for the fire department about social media. I just interpreted it as we need to be more codified. This could be a problem. We can't in this age and era have, you know, every other week somebody is in trouble because they've called this person a nigger on Twitter and they posted that we I know this is happening a lot. We need to get codified. That's the way I interpreted it. We need to clean up our game, clean up our code so we don't have to deal with this every other week. Somebody getting in trouble for calling these niggers nigger on social media. Puff. Can I be heard? Oh, okay. Go ahead, ma'am. Yes, I was leaving off at that. Um, with respect to what he just said, I, I was feeling the same way because the way he kept saying, we need to get this done, they're dragging their feet. And I'm thinking once they do get it done, how is it going to affect blacks as, as well as whites once they get things in place? I mean, they have a lot of rule books, but, you know, as you know, the rules don't apply to us, it applies to them. Just moving forward, um, just just Fox doing that whole rampage on uh, Black Lives Matter, a hate group, uh, uh, that, that whole thing was just, just poisonous. I mean, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter being a hate group, I mean, can, can, does it get any better than that? I mean, really? <laughs> Who have we burned? Who have we, you know, I mean, I mean come on. Uh, I, I don't know that. I mean, that's just, just crazy. And then there was something about, I think I heard last but not least, the guy saying, I guess the fire, the, the police, was he a firefighter who got shot or, and killed? He, somebody said at the end, oh, that was a, it probably was a welfare drug dealer or something like that. You see how you just put welfare and that just demeans you. If you are welfare, then you're just not worth a dime. If, if I'm if I'm stating it correctly, he did say something about it was nothing. He probably was on welfare or something like that. Am I right or wrong? You are correct. That that was from the movie American History X. That was from a movie that was not you know <laughs> a news clip. From the, that was from the movie American oh. History X with uh, Edward Norton's character. But you are correct. That is what he said. Oh okay. So um yeah I mean I mean just that whole ramp with um, Fox News is just so poisonous. Um and then he talked about. Oh, the police was protecting the the um, the protesters. I'm like, really? The police were really protecting the pro protesters. That was their feedback. Um, again, I do not like the fact. Again, I mean, I just wanted to throw up when I heard this black guy showing so much empathy for this white guy. I mean, really? <laughs> oh my God, you can't get him any better than this, Gus. You get these ta these clips, and I'm just taken aback. Thank you so much. Now you my line. Uh, Miss Puff, go ahead. Uh, no, he was talking about Tom Brady. I just wanted to kick in my two cents. Uh, you also not only get uh, put back in the same position, uh, you also get uh, totally celebrated like Paula Dean on Dancing with the Stars. And that's all I want to Wow. 
Oh my God. I wanted to, I forgot. I should have said this yesterday. Uh, this is, I mean, we should still be reflecting on, uh, Katrina in my opinion. Uh, some of the people that I have high esteem for, that's the message that they've been saying the whole time. Like this was devastation was ongoing. People should be talking about this the whole month of September. I don't know how many people here, like heard the full Ray Nagin speech, like when he called in on the radio uh, in September, it was like, you know, it's been four days and where people at and you're too dog doggone late and you need to get your asses down here. If you listen to that full audio, it is amazing. <laughs> like I have to sound clip it at some point. I didn't I hadn't heard the full like segment. I knew it was, you know, longer than the soundbite that people normally hear. But the whole thing is like 30 minutes. I listened this week. It is amazing. <laughs> like he's talking, he's talking about the, not talking about the, uh, any of the black people that were killed by New Orleans finest, not Henry Glover, not the Danzinger bridge, uh, not Danny Brumfield. Uh, but he's talking about the looters. He says <laughs> that a lot of the people who were breaking into stores were drug addicts who were jonesing and needed a fix. And so they were breaking into drugstores, trying to take the edge off of their craving. My jaw fell on the ground. Like I had never heard this. I never heard anybody like imply this. I was like, what in the world? Like it went from their looters to their just crackhead fiends that are just like, I was like, wow, like, and people like have any suspicion, any idea, like this is what white people, this is what the whole world thinks about you. Like you can drown, lose everything, might even die. And people will sit around and talk about you as a crackhead and a thug as you drown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that and that's really sad, and and it's really sad too because that's the, he was the mayor at the time, and to me that feeds right into the stuff you know with Black Lives Matter. I think a couple of weeks ago on this show, I, I I made a statement. I don't know how I feel about Black Lives Matter, and even today I still don't know how I feel about them. But I do find myself defending them because like you know you get this business, oh um, you know they're a hate group you know, this and that, and, like, uh, the young lady was saying something, but, you know, when you define, like, a drug dealer or a drug kingpin, non, non-black and could be, how do I say it, a drug kingpin, non-black or white, you know, all the stuff that they would have. They could be moving planes, weapons, you know, a lot of stuff, but if you say, if this black person could be designated a drug kingpin and have nothing other than the fact that he's just moving, you know, the, the real drug kingpin has given him or her some, some drugs and stuff to move around. You know, they got their bodyguards, they got some weapons, but nothing on the scale of what we would know of a drug uh, uh, kingpin. So, you know, when the definitions come to us, it, it becomes a different thing. And, um, you know, like you say, here's the mayor. And, and so my whole point was I hear people you you always saying that uh, because we say Black Lives Matter, that doesn't mean other people's lives don't matter. And one day I was on my Facebook page and somebody said that, and I just wrote, I said, stop explaining it. Stop taking time to explain to a people who are going to believe that because they want to believe that. It's just like the saying out there, because I say that, what is it, because I say that I love me as a black person doesn't mean that I hate you because, you know, 
when you, you say stuff like that, you know, white people go crazy. It's just like you say, black lives matter. Here they come with all lives matter. And it kind of gets me because I'm like, black people, the only reason why white people are saying that is because they are trying to stop you all from saying black lives matter. It's not that they're doing anything, you know. It's just that they want to stop black lives matter. And then, like, this one person said, well, if all lives matter, why are you having such a problem when black people would say black lives matter? So my whole point is, like, it's like you say, you're drowning and all they're thinking is, they need nothing but some, some girl things, don't crack it. Never mind, water's coming in, you know, and, and it's two or three days later after all this water's got in. And yet this group mysteriously, that, you know, black folks, they ain't being saved. You know, all the provisions seem like this, either you, you're just deliberately dragging your feet. Because, you know, like I said last week, I kind of feel that if 75% of the people had died, you know, they would have been just happy. So you, you get these, uh, like you say, how they feel about it. So that's why I'm like, with well, Black Lives Matter, stop explaining Black Lives Matter. That, I, you, know, uh, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, that all lives are matter. I'm like, stop explaining it to people who are going to believe what they're going to believe. Because for white people, you know, that's, that's something in their psyche. That's something in their mindset. And they're going to believe that. So my thing is, stop explaining it because this is how they feel about it. You know, this, this is how, like you say, water coming up your nose, and, you know, they're just crack addicts, you know, just trying to, you know, fiending, trying to get something to stop that fiending, because, you know, and, and that's the mayor saying that, you know, at that time, the mayor. But that's sad in itself. So, you know, my point is just stop trying. We need to stop trying to explain ourselves to people who have their minds made up about us, and they have their minds made up about us because it's really about who they are and who they are not. I'll move my line. We got like three minutes until we get to workplace racism. Anyone have anything else they want to get in? Um, I, I made an interesting observation. Um, th this is this has a little bit to do with the Black Lives Matter hate group when you did the clip in the beginning. And the police officer says, well, we don't care what they say now. We don't care if they apologize. They need to just knock it off. They need to just stop. It's despicable what they're saying. Um, we were in court, three of us, three women, black, Latino, and uh, white. And we forgot that the, they have a new bailiff because the sheriff kind of needs personal protection. So the black bailiffs are gone. There's a new white bailiff. And um, so we were talking about crazy people and the drugs and all this other stuff. And he chimed in and he said, oh, yeah, you remember Schlesinger, the high school kid down the road who shot his brother, shot his mom and dad, was on his way to the elementary school. And I don't think it had that much press. But he said, oh, that kid was crazy as can be. You should have seen his bedroom. I mean, the stuff that he wrote on his walls, he was absolutely insane. And I said, yeah, yeah, you remember? And you remember they were talking about that guy who, like, dismembered this person into 240 separate pieces and, and buried him across the state using nothing but a spoon. And he says, cut that out. Stop saying that right now. Just stop. No more of that. So I found that very interesting that he can talk about serial killers. But when it's coming from a black woman, it's absolutely verboten. You are not supposed to talk about things like that at all, ever. And it made him extremely uncomfortable. So I, I just noticed that as a casual observation. <laughs> that is, uh, 
That is hilarious. Wow. I quickly, in case anybody else said something, I was just going to add Hulk Hogan uh, clowned pretty hard this week. He did his Good Morning America thing about, you know, how he grew up and all. Oh, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, someone on Twitter likes it, basically, uh, hush up and do something for Black Lives Matter. And he said, how about all lives matter? And I was just like, that's just clown all the way, like tacky, trifling, and terroristic all the way, racist man. Does somebody else have something they could get in in 60 seconds? Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, uh, can I maybe be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, a follow-up to the Nevada uh, campers who were terrorized. Uh, they raised about uh, the so-called local residents raised about $4,500. Uh, I read that said they want them to come back up and try to redo their family reunion. And they're trying to do the PR thing that said our community really isn't like that. The other thing I found astounding, even under a system of white supremacy racism, that this person, uh, when she had to go down by the river and she thought he had a gun, this person was not arrested and was let go, and his punishment is banned from the campground. I thought that was pretty amazing. Anyway, and I would not take the $4,500 and go revisit that campground if I was that family uh, to, to give them a chance to redeem themselves so they could do a photo op. Anyway, I'll meet myself. Well said. Black self-respect. I, and just for context, just for uh, context, I think even that, that beeping noise, I have no idea what that is. That could be interference, too. At any rate, um, they raised Daniel Holtzclaw. This guy is charged 35 counts of sexual misconduct, uh, sexual misconduct. Uh, sodomy. I mean, just the worst, terrorizing a whole community of black females. He got almost $10,000 in a matter of days, $10,000 before they shut his uh, GoFundMe account down, allegedly. Uh, You already know, uh, Darren Wilson, you know, the money just keeps coming in, just keeps coming in. You can go out and kill a black person and get more than $4,500. Going to workplace racism, uh, the number again is 641-715-3640. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, the person that wrote in uh, their commentary on workplace racism, I guess I'll read that first and then uh, nab the rest of the folks. Um, let's see. Second to dig through my mail, make sure I have the uh, correct one here. Uh, I think this might even be worthy of a cowbell if my memory is uh, correct. Okay. Let's see. All right. I was trying to make sure I get some of the background noise out so I can read in peace. Here we go. Uh, 20, so this came in last Saturday. I probably should have read it on the program last Saturday. I think I was just uh, late seeing it. Uh, so the person wrote in. Uh, I wanted to mention a few things I've observed on the job. White people on my job display a lot of over-sexualized behavior. They always make references to their genitals and others. Homosexual comments and comments about feces and urine. The other day I witnessed a white male grope another white male. These white people are these white people are all so-called heterosexual. 
Yesterday, on the job, my white supervisor tried to deliberately get a black male fired. The black male was given, uh, was told to prepare materials for a job that we are working on. The black male completed the task, so he thought. Turns out he was only given half of the list of materials that he was supposed to prepare. The black male then went on to complete another task. The supervisor came over and complained about the black male. He stormed off to the office and called the VP of the company. The VP then calls the black male to ask why he was refusing to do work. The black male then explained the situation to the VP and it was straightened out. This is the second black person that this supervisor tried to get fired this week. White people are always on their job. I'm just going to read that last sentence one more time because it is crucial. White people are always on their job practicing white supremacy. Uh, folks have comments on workplace racism. Uh, feel free to chime in. Abby heard. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus, and to the rest of the callers. I just accomplished my first week of high school yesterday, and I had a couple of observations. For one, in the music department, I noticed that the majority of people there are white and the minority are black. I have a black teacher and another one that's white. And when I came there, everybody was just surprised and happy. Well, probably because I was black. But for two... In academic classes, I'm the one that gets called on for help when usually it's expected to be the other way around. But this time, it's they're coming towards me for help. That's all I wanted to share. Thank you. That is excellent. I am so glad that you are uh, being observant about uh, what's happening in your immediate surrounding. Like That's something I would encourage uh, everyone to be doing. Uh, on the job, school, like whatever it should happen to be, like that is like crucial. Be observant, pay attention. Uh, you cannot be just thinking everything is cool, and even if they're being nice to you, because he didn't say anybody mistreated him, he didn't say anybody called him names or abused him or anything. He actually said people seem to be being nice to him. Uh, he thought even maybe because he's the black person there, but be observant. Uh, do not be fooled by you know smiling white faces um wow that is that is fat i mean are you are you the only black person there or is it maybe one or two others or oh no there's actually some others it's like uh i think a quarter but it's i know it's less than half but okay i'm not the only one right on right on wow is that have you i mean how many uh i don't know when your your school year begins like how many how long have you been in, in school thus far? Uh, I started Monday and I ended on Friday. So this is my fifth day. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. First week. Glad you got through the first week. Safe and sound. Right on. Excellent. I would encourage, keep up uh, just monitoring, seeing what's happening. And uh, even if there are any, any changes in behavior, um, you know, in terms of, of how they're treating you, um, you have a good rapport with the other uh, non-white students at the school? Um, yes, they're, yeah, yeah, I actually have a good rapport with them. 
outstanding outstanding yeah, that's awesome like that'll be great like you can you can kind of monitor and uh see how things go see if anything changes uh that's i mean that that just right there being alert and and already being mindful of what's going on that you know something could happen so that you're not surprised that is awesome has your mom talked about you know what she wants you to do if if anything happens and you think it could be racist or just something that's incorrect um yes yeah, she actually has talked to me outstanding outstanding i'm all about i'm big about that like just making sure because we hear so many reports on a weekly basis about uh black children encountering racism at school and they all the time i can't believe this happened <laughs> like when the cameras come i can't believe this happened but like, you do not want that to be your child you want your child to be prepared so they're not surprised if this happens they expected it and you already have kind of told them you know the way that you uh want them to handle things that is outstanding uh, definitely keep us updated, man. As you as you go along, as you're experiencing things, as things happen, keep us updated. We definitely uh, want to hear how things are progressing. Yeah. Outstanding, black children, outstanding. Listening to the program and being codified, outstanding. Other folks have commentary. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, this is uh, Puff. Um, just briefly, uh, something uh, I noticed this week. I went to a junior high school as either Monday or Tuesday, and uh, they had me in the gym. I was a substitute for a person in the gym, and the man was glad that I was there. He was a male coach. And so all he had to do today, that day was work with the uh the boys, and then I work with the girls, okay? And so I noticed, you know, that, okay, the class shows up and everything, and so the, the girls sit in the bleachers, and the boys go to dress out because we're going to let them play basketball today. So, well, that day. Okay, so anyway, he takes them to the their locker room. You know, the boys have their own, obviously, their own locker room. And so he takes them, I mean, it's a group of about, I would say it was about 50 boys there. And so he took them to the locker room. He's going to let them play basketball. So they have to put on their gym clothes. And so they have to undress, obviously, out of their school clothes to do this. Okay, so my back is turned, and I'm, you know, kind of working with the girls a little bit. And in comes this white attendance officer. And she is a female, white female. I would say she's about 30. And so instead of waiting here, you know, in, in the front where everybody can see her, she proceeds to walk back to the locker room. And me and the other substitute just notice this and we just look at each other like, is she doing this? And so I can't really tell whether she's, like, actually opening the door to go to the boys' locker room because it's too far away. But I just thought that was to get the boys, like, to go with her, you know, the boys that she was, you know, in that class. I just thought that was that, that was a step, like, beyond belief on, on my end. And uh, go ahead somebody 
That's wild. <laughs> that is wild. I guess that's something else to chat with your children about as well. Based on my sub experience, like from last year to like now, I'm kind of glad I don't have children. Really, I'm I'm so glad I don't have I don't have children. I hate to say that, but I mean, you know, I guess I just got you know, like last year I kind of got baby fever, but you know, again, you know, baby fever is not the same thing as you know. I want a 10-year-old in 10 years. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's not, you know, the same thing as baby fever, kind of. Yeah, somebody else can go ahead. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh, any other uh, commentary? Everybody who dialed in with a hand up, uh, line should be open. Feel free to uh, chime in. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'd like to share experience I had. I'm still working on classroom decorum and, and being codified. I was in a government class in, uh, prior to uh, uh, the, the semester just started, was that uh, classroom participation is mandatory. There would be no one sitting back uh, sliding through, so that was important. Uh, a particular single, I mean, I don't know if she's single or not, it was a particular white female uh, was giving some comment on a particular uh, thing that has to do with government. In the comment, uh, in her uh, comment, it came up that back when America was great, I'd like to see America great again. So I really was careful about the inflection of my voice, uh, that I did not speak in a very rapid motion. I had did everything I thought in my own head that was non-threatening, uh, and voice inflection. And I said, could you please give me some specifics? When was America great? Uh, and can you define what is great? And was it great for all citizens? And if for some, um, I would like to know when this period, I've been hearing this pretty much all my life back when America was great, and please help me and give me a particular period with specifics of what this period, so I could examine that. Uh, she snapped on me and talked about and went offline and basically said things like, well, you know, uh, it's not perfect, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and there are people on welfare, and, 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 and they're not working, and, and went off on this tirade. And I'm sitting there uh, looking uh, in this particular situation. And, and so my, my point is, um, I guess the message is uh, pretty much do not uh, interact on any kind of level, uh, because, uh, again, uh, I know even the instructor co-signed on it that I did not say anything in a very threatening way. I, 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 I think, basically, uh, no one has been able to answer that question for me when they say back when America was great, because if they, if they know they're going to go into an ambush, if they say the 1950s, House on American Activities, all the things that was happening in the 50s, if you say the 40s, 30s, uh, shades of it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be some discussion about that, and I think personally they know that, but they love to put out that narrative, that false narrative, to say back when America was great, but no one has been able to give me the specifics of when this period, when this time frame, nor define what 
is great, define what greatness is and what is it for all the citizens. So I, I wanted to share that to say because uh, how would they codify and at the same time fulfill uh, the requirements of participation in a particular discussion in a class. And so I'm still at an impasse like that. I, I'm just, I was just totally, it, it hit me. Uh, uh, it came so far to left field that, that I, I, I didn't respond. I stayed quiet. And I, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, listening to cows for me personally, because I did not take that bait and get into a heated uh, discussion by me asking a very simple question about a claim that was made. Um, and again, the instructor co-signed that I handled myself very well and that uh, this particular lady was not chastised, nor was she told to, uh, you know, keep it civil or any of those other things. They allowed her to uh, uh, finish her tirade. Anyway, that's pretty much it for me. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, my suggestion, or at least my code for that type of environment when you don't have the freedom you know to ask any type of question without fear of you know consequences retribution them giving you a bad grade or you know expelling you anything calling you know the authorities um i would try to not over talk the question and what i mean by that is uh josh wicked i've referenced him before uh, he talked about uh, the guy down in Florida. Uh, I think it was Al Gore he was talking, and he got tased. I think he asked his question, and, and he, he over-talked it, uh, where he was saying, just ask your question right to the point. So, you know, back when America was great, I, and I would just ask one question at a time. So, you know, what do you mean great, or when was America great? Just one question, and I wouldn't add anything else to it, you know, that I've heard there's some other people, but I wouldn't add any of that. Just the one question and let her respond and uh and i mean based on whatever she says that might you know spark some other questions if it does not i suspect it would though uh you can you know pick out whatever questions you want to ask from that or then you can just go down that list that you had from originally when was america great what do you mean great was it great for everybody i would just go one at a time uh and without adding anything about you know i've asked this other people blah, 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 if i was in a more restrictive environment uh, where I felt like there could be consequences if I, you know, rile up this likely race soldier, um, if that makes any sense. And that's just my code, you know, it might not make sense, but that's that's probably how I would deal with that. Again, white women are dangerous. <laughs> I get that into white women are super dangerous. White women are super dangerous. And as I've written, that is frequently the form that they are most devastating when they are at the front of a classroom. Hmm. Uh, other fo un unless folks are doing phenomenally well, if you are, definitely invest. If you are getting all your promotions, raises, things are going great. White people are doing well by you on the job. I am so happy to hear it you can invest in the cows racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal is in the top right corner if you're not into paypal drop me an email we will get you a physical 
mailing address. Super thanks to all the folks who have invested during the uh, summer fundraiser. Uh, hope it has been a constructive investment of your time and energy. But that's what I will interpret it to be. If everybody is, is doing great, they have no gripes, white folks are causing you no obstacles on the J-O-B. Uh, caller at 6521, uh, did you have commentary? Six five two one. Are you there? Do you have commentary? Hmm. That is so interesting. I will try again. Oh, okay. They might just be listening in. Um, other folks have commentary. going to say I'll have to tell uh, Dr. Welsing because she said she uh, oh guess uh, caller do you have commentary um may I be heard yes ma'am hi um, I was uh, well this isn't my job but I was listening to someone talk about their job while I was waiting on uh, my car to be repaired and they apparently work at a foster farm and um this lady, uh, the black, the, there were black, three black people. I guess they all work for, well, at least two of them were work for Foster Farm. So um, they're uh, getting there repaired also or something similar. So the, uh, the lady was saying that she had got attacked by a turkey. So uh, I'm just listening. And then she's saying, yeah, I, I have to uh, work with the, because uh, the, I guess Foster Farm, they must deal with turkeys and chickens. And um, she said, yeah, I was um, um, tending to the turkeys, and they just started attacking me. And I just, but she still is working there. She still, she didn't take off or anything. She said, because the guy asked her, well, gee, uh, are you you at work now? Sorry, you can't go to work. She's like, well, no, I'm still at work, because she has to work. So uh, another gentleman was saying, well, you know, I work with the chickens. You know, I don't work with the turkeys. I work with the chickens. And, uh... (laughs) He said, you know, what I do is I bring their necks and, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm the one they don't want to see. I'm the one, you know, I, I'm the one they don't want to see. So I was like, oh, my God. So uh, he said, yeah, but he does this. However, however, he's. Oh, are you still uh, with us? Hello, caller in the Bay Area. Are you still with us? Not hearing? Not sure. I, I, looks like she got... I uh, <laughs> get that in as well. It seems like we might have had a lot of interference. Uh, I lost my whole internet connection earlier. I think Puff said that she got dislodged earlier. It looks like uh caller in the Bay Area who was just talking looks like she just got knocked off as well. Uh, and I said before, I think when Puff got disconnected, it was several other people who looked like they all got knocked off at the same time. So I don't know if there's some... Uh, interference or something going on but there there do seem to be some issues that are impacting folks ability to participate uh, hopefully uh, our Bay Area caller she'll bring back so she can give us the rest of uh, her if anything we got an impromptu PSA uh, for being uh, vegan or at least minimizing uh, consumption of animal products uh, I was waiting to see uh, where the where the narrative was going but definitely uh good to be mindful of where food oh, okay it looks like we 
uh, have her back on the line. Let's see if she can uh, give us the rest of what uh, what happened with the anecdote. Uh, you should be back with us. Hello, Bay Area caller. Hello, can you hear us? I'm sorry, I'm driving, so sometimes it, it'll drop, depending. But anyway, I was just um, saying that to say um, he was really, he, because we think one thing when we're working in those um, slaughterhouses, he was basically, the man that kills the chickens was basically saying that they don't, that, that we're not eating those chickens. The, those chickens that go into shock, we're not eating that. They take those chickens and put them and burn them. So I asked him, well, how do you know that that's what's happening to the chicken? That I don't, I don't believe that they're taking, because all of the chickens are in, all of those animals are in shock if they're screaming help before you're going to kill them. So they're all in shock. So how do you know that that meat isn't going into the public? So he said, well, it's not. I said, well, how do you know that? So he said, I guess I don't. He said, but they tell us that they burn the chicken. But to me, it doesn't make sense to get rid of that meat. And it, it doesn't make sense to get rid of that meat. And how do you know if the chicken or the animal, the turkey or whatever it is, went into shot? He's just like, I just don't know, but I, I don't know now. So it's just, a, it, it, it's, I just thought that was interesting, the kind of work that we have to do. Because they say that we don't want to work. There's a lot of work that we won't do. But... We are working there. We're working under those kind of conditions. We're working at foster farms, slaughtering animals, and we don't even really know what's going on. We're just doing what we're told to do. So I'll mute my line, but I just thought that was interesting because I've, I've never heard anything like that, and I, I I didn't even know ladies work with animals like that, slaughtering turkeys and plucking. I just didn't, I didn't know that. And she was a young lady, like maybe under 30. So... I, I just thought that was strange, and we don't even know what they're giving us because they're not taking those chickens and burning them in a truck. They're selling that stuff. Okay, and I'll mute my line. Thank you so much. Right on. Definitely appreciate getting that. As I said, impromptu uh, PSA for being uh, more conscious, more mindful uh, about what we put on our fork. That is definitely important. Dr. Cambob would uh, definitely encourage that. Uh, and I, 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 I totally agree. I, it's no way uh, with the mentality that I see from racist woman, racist man, racist child that they would waste anything. Like if they could grind up the feces of the chicken and, you know, market that as, you know, a chicken nugget or something, they would do that. I mean, that is that's everything that I have seen from the way that white people function. So I do not believe that at all. Um, that just that is <laughs> that is not the least bit credible. Um we have, uh, I think, about 15. I uh, We did not include anything uh, on Vester Flanagan uh, last week, uh, a.k.a. Bryce Williams. Uh, I did so deliberately, deliberately uh, because uh, I thought that that was a big distraction, these two white people that died and then uh, this non-white male who allegedly, reportedly uh, took his own life. Um the catastrophic loss of Katrina, I mean, to distract from that, to talk about these two white people, I mean, that's, anyway, uh, that might even be workplace racism, uh, the report, this was in the New York uh, Daily News, uh, where they said he was outraged by common phrases he deemed racist, fumed after Barr told him, have a nice day, I was just trying to pick out the, the workplace 
uh, racism aspects of this because I, I had told people I was like, wow, this might even this might even be <laughs> grounds for workplace racism discussion. Um, let's see. Okay, the 41-year-old Flanagan, who is black, uh, took his white co-worker's phrases as a reference to cotton fields, according to a report. Flanagan appears to mention Parker's purported digs at him in a Twitter rant. He went on while on the run after he fatally shot the reporter and 27-year-old cameraman, uh, cameraman Adam Ward during a live broadcast. Uh, Allison made racist comments. William tweeted, they hired her after that. Adam went to HR on me after working with me one time. Flanagan was also irked when a man- manager once brought in watermelon for all employees, which he said was a slight to his skin color. <clears throat> he was victimized by everything and everyone and could never quite grasp the fact that he was the common denominator in all these really sometimes serious interpersonal conflicts that he had with people, said Dan Dennison, who was the news director at WDBJ during Flanagan's tenure. I will stop there. Uh, I did see some reports where they were uh, either either they had discussed having the police present when he was going to be terminated or they did. Uh, and I just I think we had talked about that before black people being humiliated uh, on the job uh, and how that impacts you. And what have you, the damage that that can do to a person's sight. We've had people just on this program recently talk of it's been talked about repeatedly uh, where white people uh, accused them falsely was a lot of the allegations that we had. It wasn't even somebody being fired, but just, you know, we think, you know, Mr. Johnson over here stole a T-shirt or a coffee mug. So we need to have him cuffed and, you know, taken out in front of everybody. They do this sort of stuff all the time. Uh, and this a lot of what I heard. And I don't I don't know the full details. I have my own you know, curiosity about all this. But um, I just a lot of how they responded. It seems very consistent uh, in the system of white supremacy when white people uh, do practice racism, white supremacy and make their racist jokes and racist comments on the job and then you say hey you're you're being racist that's incorrect oh you're so sensitive you're playing the victim card i can't believe you you're so sensitive their standard operating procedure we've heard that so many times on workplace racism but i definitely thought that would might be worthy of commentary during our workplace racism segment uh 10 last 10 did anybody have any other any other commentary workplace racism that is right amazing i'm gonna have to tell Dr. Wilson, because she said, I could not imagine being able to get together uh, 10 black people and nobody uh, has any, you know, concerns about their treatment on the job. Everybody feels like they're being promoted. They're getting all their raises and, you know, banquets to applaud your uh, outstanding service and dedication uh, to the company. Uh, that's great. You're, you know, <laughs> that's great. I'm glad. Invest in the cows. That's great if things are going that well. Uh, nine two nine eight. Did you have commentary? Nine two nine eight. Nine two nine eight. Did you have commentary, or are you just listening? I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Oh, hello. I wanted to get in earlier, but I had so much background noise that I, um, you know, decided it would be a big distraction. Um, this is Lady from New York, and um, definitely had uh, workplace racism. Um, a home educator and registering for that was quite interesting last weekend. Um, and I was not I was not welcomed with 
in that aspect uh, for being a home educator, a homeschooler um, within my district, and I was told several times just to put my children in school. I was even given law books as far as requirements, um, as far as education, and it just was it was a really frustrating week when it came to that, and it was very purposeful. Um, because some of these things are online on what the law is. I had another um, mom show me uh, another black parent, and she made it so simple it was within a matter of two minutes. She showed me what I needed to do and how I needed to complete forms. She whipped it out, and it was simple, but it just was um, a very interesting week um, in regards to that. Um, So I'll mute my line. And um, if anyone else, you know, has to say something or listen to the prayer from from this point on, thank you. That is so huge. Like, uh, that. I mean, that's something I would be stunned if other people that are listening right now have not enc- uh, encountered. But white people, like, just making it unnecessarily difficult for you to get access to information. Like, I, that is comic i'm just making sure i heard that correct that was what was happening right they were making it difficult for you to get access to information that you needed that's correct um they made it very difficult i was encouraged not to be a home educator several times by several different white persons um i knew actually some of what i needed and all i wanted to do was uh at one point was just kind of um scan the documentation to put on a flash drive, and I was denied. I was thrown law books, which is like, um, you know, I don't need a law book to homeschool. Um, I was just pointed in different directions just to get me, um, because they did not want to tell me the right information. They just steered me in a complete in total different direction um, because they just didn't want to deal with me. And finally, I, again, I got a hold of another um, another uh, mom, and she, I mean, it was just like instant results. But people who are, who are professionals who, you know, I know that they know the law because it's a part of their job. I know they know how um, things need to be documented literally just refused me. It was like they they said, oh, she's she's new. She doesn't know what she really needs to do. Let me give you, uh, let me confuse you. And then on top of that, threatened me. Um, so I did take note of that uh, date and times, and I made myself a little um, note. Um, but I just, it was very, very interesting that, um, I'm in a district where, I, you know, and like most African Americans are, where all the schools are failing. Most children are not graduating, and um, you know, they were very upset to hear that I decided to do something different as far as my children's education, and very challenging on the fact that um, one in which is very advanced. Um, so, very interesting week with dealing with racist man and racist woman always is always is (laughs) man 
that's uh that but that's that is so common like that's one of the things that's why i said i think on the job like it's really good if you can make an effort to um just try to get information like really that's going to be a part of your assignment as a black person like trying to get as much information about the company uh just the more you know the better you are mr fuller talked about that we man it was years ago but he talked about that like that's something that you should do just in when i said that before when people come to you to gossip you know oh my lord man nancy on friday she mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so what do they have another branch uh at this company really wow it's in okay that's the type of thing that you are. Oh, okay. So, wow. If I ever decide that I want to transfer to the town that's 50 miles down the road. Oh, okay. Wow. And they have a program you could. Oh, okay. Great. More information. More information. That is going to be to your benefit. That's the type of thing that you should be trying to do. Uh, and even all my, I would say, even getting a reputation for that. Just being curious so that you can know things constructive and, and just being informed about what's going on. Great. That is going to be in uh, your interest uh, and white people they're going to be blocking you trying to do this that's why I said like that should be one of your top assignments and to expect that then making it difficult for you to get access to really easy information uh, we have about five minutes uh, anybody else have commentary they want to get in last five amazing I, I don't know if we just have really codified uh listeners and uh they are doing diligence I, again at minimum <clears throat> at minimum folks should be uh taking notes on the job field notes as i have called them uh just so that you are aware of things that are happening you know what's going on that sort of thing that you know should be taking place even if you are not directly being mistreated like this week this hour because you know that can change quickly uh but at minimum just be taking notes being observant what's going on what people are talking about is the caller that wrote in hopefully folks uh, are are doing that and uh if folks are not having problems that is great even though i have also encouraged if you have figured out a way to codify things so that you're not having problems that's always great to hear as well uh, if you figured out some some codified strategies things you can do on the job to help minimize conflict with other non-white coworkers uh and or things to neutralize uh, racists who are trying to cause you difficulties on the job if uh, you know you have figured out some strategies that are working well for you on either front definitely uh, that's always appreciated and uh, yeah folks are doing well again invest in the program uh, I will make sure that I get in um, with the the book suggestion uh, I, I had wanted to make sure that I gave the full disclosure all of the books that I wanted to read they are very lengthy um, this is the type, these are the type of books that we could probably never do on the book club because they're so long. Uh, and we only do one segment a week. It would take us like, I don't know, it would take us like a half a year to read these books doing it at that rate. Um, I think most of these books are like 900 pages. Some of them are longer than that. Uh, that's why I said, this is just, you know, for readers, I'm sure we have, you know, a few folks out there who are readers uh and we're not gonna read the whole thing in like a day or anything i'd say the pace that i was thinking if we could do something in the neighborhood of uh like 200 pages a week i thought in that neighborhood like that's roughly 30 pages it's less than 30 pages a day even it's less than 30 pages a day uh, i think some people were saying that's a bit much um you know we could adjust i was trying to uh i thought if we did 200 pages a week we could finish in a reasonable amount of time like we would finish in like a month and a half or so 
which seems uh, reasonable <laughs> for uh, this is like the readers. This is for people who, you know, enjoy reading. You do reading on your own. Uh, so but, you know, I'm, I'm flexible. It doesn't have to be that much if, if people think that's too much. But uh, it looks like right now uh, there's no wave of voters. So it looks like right now the book that we would be doing is Five Days at Memorial, uh, Sherry Fink. Uh, I think. I could accommodate people uh, who wanted to check the book out. I might be able to aid in that department, uh, particularly if you uh, have like iBook. Um, I, I think I might be able to assist uh, in you being able to get a copy to read. But we have, I think, six people who've already said that they would be down to read. Four of the six voted for five days at Memorial. And uh, at least one of the other people said that they they're in regardless. Uh, so it looks like that's the book that we'll be doing five days at Memorial. Again, it's uh during Hurricane Katrina Memorial Hospital, uh, it loses power. The white doctors, uh, they decide that the course of action to take is to kill the patients that cannot be, that they think cannot be evacuated or saved. And once everybody leaves the hospital, when they do get evacuated, they are just going to, you know, suffer and die. So they think the merciful thing to do is to kill these folks, giving them a lethal cocktail so that they can die peacefully in their beds this does get prosecuted by a black district attorney it is a very unpopular case in new orleans as were i think all of the post-katrina uh prosecutions for killings that took place some many by the nopd um but that's the book uh that we'll be doing it is uh like a thousand pages uh, but, you know, if you would be interested in participating, feel free. You can drop an email until justice at gmail dot com message on Facebook. If you're in, uh, we'll have a thread so that people can post comments as we go. Uh, and we'll just add this uh, to the material we're already doing. We'll be here for the book club on Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Katrina after the flood. Gary Riblin. Uh, man, I'm looking forward to it and hoping uh, folks will participate as we move through the book with that uh we did our three hours uh, i hope folks are doing well uh on the job and all the way around i hope folks are being constructed being codified and uh school is starting back up so definitely make sure you're talking to your uh children i'm glad that was great to hear from uh young folks young listener uh just starting out with school uh anybody else that just started out with school uh definitely whether you're from the uh pupil side or the administrator side uh, staff side teacher side uh, definitely I hope you have a constructive year and are able to do great things uh, in the classroom uh, be codified make sure you talk to your children uh, about racism white supremacy you do not want them to be stunned if something happens from either their other if they have white people that are you know their peers talk to them about that and white teachers staff members talk to them about that you already make sure that they have the game plan go over with that with them on a regular basis just so they're comfortable they know what to do they're not surprised they already know how to handle that sort of situation make sure you do that it is arming your child it's the same thing as telling them not to put their hand on a stove uh with that if you have any suggestions complaints gripes problems uh feel free you can drop an email until justice at gmail Dot com. Uh, our listener uh, out in Virginia uh, just moved. I know that is stressful. I hope you are taking care and replenishing. I hope all listeners taking care. Make sure you take time for yourself to uh, replenish. The system of white supremacy does a lot of damage to us on a constant basis. Uh, take time to uh, replenish yourself and, and just do things to 
mend and repair uh, so that we continue uh, about the business of countering racism. Uh, that said, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, if you are going to be driving, you definitely do not want to consume any intoxicants. Even if you're going to be a pedestrian or a passenger, I would be cautious uh, about the uh, intoxicants, alcohol, race soldiers, white people in general. They're just looking for the opportunity to make things difficult for black people. You heard that on the program this evening. You don't want to make their job easy. Uh, be mindful. You definitely want to avoid uh, white people and alcohol. That is a bad combination. Be mindful about even non-white people that you're around if they're under the influence. It's a recipe for disaster frequently shown. With that, uh, buckle up if you're going to drive. Easy way. Minimize likely encounters with race soldiers. Everything we can to just minimize, minimize, minimize. Buckle up. Uh, I know too many victims who go out and they get stopped repeatedly. And it's, I mean, that's money. That's time and energy. Uh, I mean, you're coming and you are voluntarily by not buckling up, putting yourself at greater risk of coming in contact with an armed white person. Why would you do that? Buckle up. With that, creator, we ask that you help us be patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us be patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. The problem is white people. Thanks for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.